3: Out of what's going on in the world today, and you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio, with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Ballas, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett, and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on internet radio. And you can join the show, and let your voice be heard, by dialing 917 889
0: Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsoutherncents.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for my patron food. Well you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense, you're here listening here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, WCET, out of Columbia, South Carolina, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostess, the radio chick. And right now, flying a little solo as my co-host is off in La La Land for the next 15, 20 minutes. But you will be joining us eventually, Curtis C.S. Bennett. But we've got a lot to talk about today, a lot to do. Things are going so out there. We've got ourselves lined up some great, great guests. We have the daughter of Dinesh D'Souza. She has a brand new book out. It's blockbusting. It is land- Earthquake shaking. It is an exciting book. Uh, honestly, it's a very, very good book, easy to read, but at the same time, very difficult because of the subject of which she t- she touches upon. It's Danielle De Souza Gill, and the book she has out is called Abortion. I'm sorry, it's called The Choice: The Abortion Divide in America, uh, and it it, it really. It, it really opens up the truth about what the left is not telling you about, what the pro-choice side is lying to you about. She breaks it down, and she really brings it emotionally home to the heart. Uh, so we will have her start off the show with us. And then we have Kat Kamak. Kat Kamak, she was the uh, chief of staff and campaign manager for our friend Uncle Ted, uh, as I call him, Congressman Ted Yoho. because you know, Ted Yoho is not running for re- re-election. So Kat Kamak is running for his seat in Florida District 3. And oh man, the story she's going to have to tell you. Um, she got doxed by her opponent, her rather immature opponent. And um, she and her family was placed in great danger because of him and we're gonna be talking to her about that as well as her campaign and the issues she stands on. And then we're gonna have a friend of mine. Oh, he is such a sweetheart. I saw him on Sunday when we had our Trump rally. Uh so I said, You know, Drew, come on, it's been a while, gotta come back on the show and he says, Yes. Uh he checked his schedule and he will be with us today, Drew McKissick. He is the chairman for the South Carolina GOP. He'll be joining us talking about the state of affairs in the election here because we've got a really, really close race, Uh, two races uh, between Nancy Mace and Joe Cunningham, or as I call him, Beer Can Joe, uh, who took over the seat from Mark Sanford. So Nancy Mace is running for that seat. And we also have Lindsey Graham in a race for his life against Jamie Harrison. And what no one is talking about, Jamie Harrison, the Democrat, Is actually a socialist Democrat. He is also a career lobbyist. And uh, (laughs) normally we've got congressmen and senators that leave uh, their elected office and then later on become lobbyists. Well, Jamie Harrison's trying this the other way around. He is a career lobbyist looking to join the the, uh, Senate. Okay, Uh, and then we're going to have Michael Fisher. He is a homelessness expert, and what we're seeing across the nation is a drive to register homeless people to vote. And New York City seems to be a prime hotspot location for that. And then we're going to end the show off with Hans von Spakovsky. I love saying his name. I just really do. He's our Heritage Foundation expert. Will once again join us talking about voter fraud and the conditions and various lawsuits. I mean, the closer we get to the wire, the more and more we see these lawsuits left and right. And the way the courts are ruling on them, you have an individual court that rules on the same issue but in two different states rules differently. Um, so that doesn't make any sense at all to me, but that's what we're seeing happen. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about, even though Curtis is not with us until a little bit later on during the show. But want to welcome everyone that is listening over in um, Facebook, as well as all the other locations, as well as here on Blog Talk Radio, joining us in the chat room. Um, I have to apologize to the people over at WCET uh, because you sent me a bunch of promos and it came through on my Skype account and I'm having a heck of a hard time downloading them off of Skype to put them on so I can play them. But I will mention you out there as much as I can if I remember. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Like I said, we've got a lot going on and a lot to talk about. But those that join the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes some of these dedications just hit me really hard, so I'm going to try to get through this as well as I can uh, because today's dedication is going to go out to Officer Brienne Leith of the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department in Indiana. Her end of watch was Thursday, April 9th. Of this year, and this is from Fox 59, and it reads: IMPD Officer Brianne Lee was shot and killed in the line of duty while responding to a domestic disturbance call on the city's east side on Thursday, April 9th, in the afternoon. Police were called to the 1800 block of Edinburgh Square which is just southwest of 21st Street and North Franklin Road, around 2.50 p.m. for a domestic disturbance. When officers arrived at the the apartment, someone inside fired shots. Leith and a woman inside the home were hit by gunfire. Leith later died at the hospital. She had heard the call and went toward that which could do her harm because she knew if she didn't, harm may come to others, Mayor Hogseth said. Leith, 24, was a lifelong Indianapolis resident, and she wanted to be a police officer ever since she was a child. She was a graduate of the Southport High School, and she served in the Army National Guard before joining IMPD two and a half years ago. She was the mother of a young son. Leith grew up in a law enforcement family. Her dad is a deputy sheriff, and her mother is a control operator with the Marion County Sheriff's Office of in Georgia. INPD Chief Randall Taylor said, she was an example of the type of officer we want on this department. Taylor said a suspect is in custody, and the other woman who was shot suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Governor Holcomb shared the following statement regarding Leif's death. Officer Leif gave her life as she answered the call of duty. Janet and I are heartbroken for her family, friends, and the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. I ask every Hoosier to join me in honoring Officer Leif's courageous service and dedication to her community. She will be forever remembered for being the finest among us. Perry Township Schools released the following statement. We are heartbroken to learn that Officer Brienne Leith lost her life in the line of duty. Our thoughts and prayers are with the family, many of whom have bravely served our community for years. We are thankful for their courage, as well as the courage of every law enforcement officer who serves and protects. Indiana National Guard issued this statement. We are saddened to learn about the loss of Breanne Leith, a fellow citizen soldier. Our deepest condolences go out to her family and friends during this difficult time. Breanne honorably served with the Indiana National Guard, assigned to the 387th Military Police Company at Camp Atterbury from March 2014 through April of 2017. She was honorably discharged as a specialist. Her teammates were devastated to hear of her passing. They reminisce of her journey and strong desires to serve her community and country as a selfless citizen. She had a positive impact on not only her fellow soldiers, but the many others in which she served. Sergeant Stephen Mann, Battalion Assistant Operations Non-Commissioned Officer of the 238th General Support Aviation Battalion, reflects on his time as Special Leads recruiter. Breanne was the perfect example of what it means to be in the National Guard, said Sergeant Mann. She was a young woman from the start who wanted to give back and protect others. While she wasn't old enough yet to join the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, she became a military police officer to receive the very best training, and when the time came, be ready to answer the call. She was a hero, a beacon in her community, a symbol of change and a source of motivation to do more. This city, state, and country lost one of its best. By Shakira Harris on WRTV.com. A new initiative to stop the domestic violence will honor fallen Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department Officer Brianne Leith. The law enforcement action to halt domestic violence against men. Women and Children, or LEAP program, is named after Officer LEAP. The initiative will work to identify domestic violence offenders who commit a crime with an illegal firearm, targeting them for federal prosecution. Domestic violence abusers who have access to firearms are five times more likely to kill their partners than those who do not have access to a firearm. United States Attorney Josh Minkler said, Federal law makes it unlawful for a domestic abuser to buy, possess, or use firearms. Vigorously enforcing these laws is a common-sense solution aimed at saving lives. LEAF will also support domestic violence survivors by connecting them to services and resources, such as a partnership between the City and Domestic Violence Network, which provides safe housing for survivors during the COVID-19 pandemic. Domestic violence dispatches in the first quarter of 2020 in Indianapolis are more than double than the same time of last year, with IMPD reporting 3,130 runs in 2019 and 6,664 runs in just 2020. While the level of domestic violence in our neighborhoods this year is not unique to Indianapolis, it is nonetheless unacceptable and our officers remain committed to addressing it, IMPD Chief Randall Taylor said. Officer Leith was an exceptional woman and law enforcement professional who was taken from her family, friends, and colleagues and community far, far too soon. Roland H. Herndon, Jr., a special agent in charge at ATF's Columbus Field Division. The Leith Initiative is our attempt to memorialize her continue her work in the aid of domestic violence and to protect the law enforcement officers who are put in harm's way responding to domestic violence calls, Herndon said. Continuing to keep firearms out of hands of individuals with prior domestic violence convictions will make our whole community a safer place. And finally, from ABC News by Bill Hutchinson, Adhering to social distancing rules amidst amidst the coronavirus pandemic, hundreds of police officers wearing protective masks stood next to their squad cars, lining the track around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for a final salute to a fellow officer who was gunned down while responding to a domestic violence call. Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Officer Brianne Bree, Leaf 24, was described during the service by a police chaplain, Patricia Holman, as a beautiful flower picked way too soon. She had a way of making you think, you know what, I really can do better. I want more for myself. One of Leif's sister, Tiana Leaf told mourners, I'm going to make you proud, most definitely. Choking back tears, she added that Leap's son will get so much more love and kisses and tickles, and you're going be jealous. Leith, who joined the Indianapolis Police Force in December of 2017, was killed on April 9th when she and other officers responded to a domestic violence call at a residence. Authorities alleged the suspect, Elias Dorsey, 27, who had been charged with murder, opened fire through a closed door striking Leith. Speaking at the funeral, Indianapolis Police Chief Randall Taylor said, Leith died while she courageously stood her post, representing what's best in society. By simply putting on that uniform, she made the world a better place, he said. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb said Leith's death is a stinging reminder of a risk that those who wear the uniform face every day. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Leanne Leith. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who don their uniforms as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And I will note that in the National Guard, Leanne uh, Leith served in the Honor Guard attending the funerals of veterans and active military who died in the line of duty. So in return, the National Guard stood in honor for her at her funeral at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. May God bless each and every one. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America.
3: Others gave it to me, they believe in the virtues I stand for, I respect for humanity, now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power.
0: And we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. <laughs> I forget where the heck I am. Besides WCET of Columbus, South Carolina, I'm your whacked-up hostess without the most history <laughs> you Annie. And we've got Curtis C.S. Bennett with us. Curtis, you know what? I am so messed up today. I didn't give you the call-in numbers for our first guest, which I am now going to text over to you. I apologize, but welcome back. No problem. (laughs) Yeah, you know, every
4: once in a while, you get those um, car problems, and the wife's um, starter Mm -hmm. on her car failed to start. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that's where I came in. So we finally got, um, what is it, triple A to come out and take it to our local mechanic, so hopefully she'll get it back soon. I have to work the polls tomorrow, so she may be using my car for the next day or two. But anyway, <laughs> that's taken care that's
3: of. And, we're
4: back. <laughs> and I can say this much, um, having worked the polls and um, kind of like keeping an eye on what's going on in Florida here. In North Florida, so far in the counties surrounding Jacksonville, which is Duval County, Trump voters are outnumbering um, Biden voters two to one. The big cities like Jacksonville, they're kind of a little behind. Yeah. But then again, they have a lot of Democrats, mostly these Democrats who move from the north down south, and they bring in their same politics, trying to escape.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: it's crazy. They escape in the north, but they bring in their same habits down here. And voting habits is what I'm talking about. But in the, the rural areas, I mean, it's like two to one margin Trump well, supporters.
0: Well, I got to say, we have firsthand that we changed our school board here in, uh, in Buford, South Carolina, because we had the northern influence in on it. And we have a saying, and, Curtis, you can attest to this, we don't give a damn how you did it up north. You know, you're right. They bring their politics down here. I came here to escape those politics. And they're just following behind because now they realize they're being taxed out of existence. But, hey, dummies, your politics are attached to those taxes. If you leave those politics behind, if you modify your politics and become more conservative than liberal, your taxes might just lower. And then you can stay up there with your snow and everything else. But but they bring them down. Now our county council has its chair is a person from New Jersey. And oh my God, the uproar he is causing down here. We're going to see the county council start to change. You know, Mm. there's people that are starting to get involved in our local government that have never been involved in before. Matter of fact, I didn't find out about this until late last night, but we had over here an anti-mask rally. And, you know, uh, my friend, who who put it together, put the video up on YouTube. And I thought I'd see only just like a handful of people or something like that. But it, it was a lot of people out there. Uh, people are getting pissed off. And they were saying, open this country up. And four more years, four more years. Now, we had here um, in our county, we had a Trump rally on Sunday. And despite the fact it was raining out, People still came, and we had a huge crowd. And oh my goodness, it was absolutely wonderful. And I got to say, you know, they allowed me about you know, 30 seconds of speech. <laughs> of course, I get up, I don't keep my big mouth shut. And I had the honor to do the Pledge of Allegiance before the crowd. And afterwards, I started the rally off by getting them to chant. Ballot Box Revolution. I can't even talk to you. And I had them chanting Ballot Box Revolution over and over and over again. It was great. What a way to start the rally. Oh, man. But it looks like we may have our guest here, Curtis. Curtis?
4: That's correct. She's ready.
0: Okay. Let's unmute and welcome... Our first victim onto the show, Danielle Souza gill Good afternoon, Danielle. How are you today?
5: Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: You know, um, your your publisher sent me the book, and as I was starting off the show, I said it is an easy book to read uh, because of your writing style, but because of the content at the same time, it's a very difficult book. And I got up to around, I think it was Chapter 3, uh and I was starting to cry. And it was getting late at night, and I had to put the book down. And my husband goes, what's wrong? And I said, well, it's, reading this, it's very difficult, and I'm afraid I'm going to have nightmares when I go to bed. That, that is how in-depth you do your research on your book, which is titled The Choice, uh, The Abortion Divide in America. And it really blows the lid off of the pro-choice. Arguments. It is a phenomenal must-read book.
5: Well, thank you so much for reading it and for being willing to dive into this topic. I know it's it's a tough it's a tough topic, as you said, but I think it's an important one to to dive into.
0: Well, I got to say, there is a group out there uh, called Life Chain, and they do a prayerful rally uh, twice a year, and. One of the reasons why I wanted you on the show is this Sunday is the date of one of those rallies. And uh, my mom um, has moved in with me. You know how parents are when they get to a certain age. They end up moving back with you instead of you moving in with them. Um, She had a stroke. But I took her to one of my Trump rallies, and she was wearing a pro-life T-shirt. And as we had the counter-protesters with Black Lives Matter across the street, she kept them waving at her shirt, yelling at them, God bless my 88-year-old mom. But she wants to go to this rally on Sunday. And I'm thinking, well, I don't have a shirt, a shirt to wear that's a pro-life shirt. So I'm going to make my own shirt. I've got the, the ability to do that. And, Danielle, my, li- my shirt is going to say, I thank God my mom chose life. What do you think about that?
5: Absolutely. I mean, every single one of us who's been born has the privilege of being in this earth and being able to be born and many who don't have that privilege because, unfortunately, in the womb, they are uh, very rudely interrupted and killed. So I absolutely think we should all use our voice to stand for life because we all have that privilege. But I think that We should just be focused on stopping this from continuing and from getting far worse than it is now. We have almost a million abortions a year, which is crazy because, um, you know, the Democrats have said that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare and so on. But, of course, that has not been the case at all.
0: No, it's not. And I'm glad you said that because originally their argument was that it was safe and legal and rare, but that's not the case anymore.
5: Right, exactly. That was really the big slogan that they said kind of in the 80s, 90s. Bill continues to talk about that. And um, I think that was kind of their way of saying, you know, hey, guys, we know that you think this is a bad thing, hence rare. But they also wanted to be able to do it. And I think that a lot of Americans said, hmm, well, I don't really know about this. But now that we've seen it, now that we've seen how abortion has just become anything but rare, and also with the ultrasound, with seeing the child in the womb, with hearing the heartbeat and all of that, we know exactly what's happening in the womb. So that is technology that they unfortunately didn't really have as, in as much depth as we do now. So I think it's becoming very clear to people that there is life in the womb during pregnancy, and we're kind of in a little bit more of just an information war and being able to get out this information. And that's kind of my goal is to make sure that more people know about that.
0: Yeah, and some of the things that I, I was reading in the book, Um, really uh, the the scientific fact about whether or not the child, I'm not going to call it a fetus, a child uh, can actually feel pain. And with technology today, we're finding at a much younger age because I was reading the platform that the Republican Party was putting up for Biden and for Trump, and um, Trump supports, you know, painless where. at that point, if the child, the child doesn't feel pain, then what harm are you doing? But we're finding that, you know, at the first term, the child can now feel pain.
5: So even that argument is starting to go out the window. Exactly. I mean, it's so clear that the child feels pain even in the first trimester that releases hormones like cortisol, the same hormones that we release when we're in pain and when we're under duress. And even with the suction method of abortion, the most popular method, we can see in an ultrasound the child try to get away from the suction tube coming towards it to, um, you know, suck it out of the womb. So it absolutely um, can feel pain and knows when something is coming towards it. And, of course, with third trimester abortions, we, we know that when they pierce the brain, pierce the heart, burn the skin from the out, so on, it's actually a very long process of death. It can take hours. And the woman doesn't return until the next day to find out if the child died in the womb and only then can they kind of go to the next step. But it's really a horrible, horrible thing that we are having these infants suffering and they are never administered with any kind of anesthesia. So if any of us were in pain, we would likely receive care like that, but they do not receive that care.
0: You know, you go into a lot of scientific facts and I know we are we're on limited time, so we really can't go into a lot of it. Uh, but you also compare the moral issue of abortion to the moral issue that tore our nation apart with the Civil War. You know, what is the value of life? What is human life? You know, the dignity of the individual. And and what I found very interesting is that, you know, we throw around the term fetus very easily and a lot of people don't understand what the actual definition of that word is. And as you break down you know, what is life, when is life, and why do we call this this child that's developing a fetus? I, I, I thought that argument was so compelling.
5: Well, thank you. Yeah, fetus is actually Latin for the word offspring. So we even see that, you know, going back thousands of years ago, they knew exactly what was happening during pregnancy. Hence, pregnancy, what does that actually mean? It means to be with child. And um, it was understood for a long time that when someone is giving birth, we are just transferring the location of that child from the womb to outside of the womb. But there was never any question as to what pregnancy was, you know, what happens in that and how you get to that place. So I think this whole idea today where the left acts like this is a huge mystery, like we have no idea what's happening and so on uh, really doesn't make any sense. And I think even if we look at kind of these older terms that were used, um, we can see that common sense really tells us uh, what is happening there, in addition to all of the technology we talked about. But I think the common sense aspect is often ignored.
0: Well, you know, even if we look at, yeah, you say going back thousands of years, in the Bible, Jeremiah 1, I knew you in the womb. Uh, actually, saying that you are a child of God at that point. So, it, 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 we ancient man knew.
5: Yeah, and we even see, um, as you mentioned, in the Bible that with uh, John the Baptist it says he you know, he leapt in his mother's womb when he encountered Jesus in the womb as well. So we kind of have this um, very clear references to the womb to people that are um, clearly you know, human beings in the womb, and also the aspect that they have a soul. I think that the left often has kind of pivoted to this idea that they might be human, but they're not a person. They're not really a person like the rest of us. They don't have the same moral complexity and so on as the rest of us. And so because they don't have this special status of personhood, we can kill them and do whatever we want to them. But the reality is that we all have a soul and there is no difference between being a human and being a person. Every human is a person. And when they kind of try to separate those two things, does that then open the door to this, well, really mass killing and torture? Now, what
0: drove you to write this book?
5: Well, um, I live in New York City, so I saw Governor Cuomo light up the Freedom Tower pink to celebrate Nine month abortions for no medical reason. He said this is something he hopes the rest of the nation follows. And I think just this idea that the Democrats are celebrating abortion, that they are, you know, lighting up this golden pink, all of these things. We have organizations like Shout Your Abortion. Even, you know, Michelle Williams, who spoke at the Golden Globes, talked about how she would not be the person she is today had she not had her abortion. And Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac has talked about this, and many other celebrities. And so, I think I just want, really wanted to counter the narrative that in order to be an empowered woman and so on, you have to have an abortion. Um, I think it's a very twisted lie that the left sells, and unfortunately, many women later um, only then realize that that was something that um, had they've carried with them for a long time. So I think that, unfortunately, the abortion debate has just gotten completely crazy because the left is no longer in tune with what most Americans believe, which is that abortion Um, is a horrible thing. No one celebrates abortion that I know. Um, So that whole narrative that they're pushing, I think, is very tone deaf.
0: Absolutely. And uh, when I was at the inauguration uh, and they had this march the next day, we were trying to pack the car up. And we ended up, because we were three blocks behind the Capitol, smack in the middle of this woman's march with these stupid women walking around with these pink vaginas on their head. And one of the people marching with them happened to have been a pastor. And, of course, I, my, my listeners know I don't keep my mouth shut. So I started going, really, a man of God that you would support murder? And all of a sudden my girlfriend's grabbing me. You're going to get us beat up. And I, probably if I did that today, I would be beat up. But, you know, we're not challenging them as much as we should. You know, we're finding that certain people that call themselves Christian are still supporting pro-choice and not pro-life. And I find that absolutely amazing.
5: Yeah, it's really sad because I think so many Christians today, unfortunately, only care about being liked, being cool, being woke, all of this stuff. And they only care about the issues that seem popular to them. They don't actually care about what is going on in this world with the killing of these children. They Unfortunately, I don't think they even care about these other issues that they claim to care about. And so um, I think with a lot of Christians, unfortunately, not voting pro-life, I think it just shows the fact that we, um, we have a, a big broken culture. Um, we need to wake up a lot of people on this issue, but uh, there will always be people who unfortunately claim to be Christian, but they don't actually follow the word. They don't actually follow the Lord. Um, if we think back to slavery, there were many people who did not do anything, did not say anything. The abolitionist movement was actually very small. And, of course, later many people kind of wanted to take moral credit and look back and say, oh, I would have been against that. Of course I would have been on that side. Well, when that was going on, where were you doing nothing? And I think that's kind of the case with the pro-life movement. A lot of Christians later probably will look back and say, wow, what an injustice, how horrible that was. But during the time, they didn't want to get their hands dirty and get involved because they'd rather support kind of socialist movements because the left makes it seem cool, even though those are actually very destructive to human life.
0: Now, when you did your research, how did you go about doing this, putting all this information together in this book?
5: Yeah, it was a long process. It took me about a year to write it, and I really kind of dived it up into many different sections. Every chapter is a different pro-choice myth. So – I kind of tackled each of them individually. So when I was looking into, let's say, my chapter on Roe v. Wade, that, of course, was a lot of legal research. When I was diving into kind of more of the cultural explanations, I looked at what the culture is saying. Um, So it definitely took a long time, but I think that it's definitely worth it, getting to see it kind of come out now and reach people and change people's minds on it. It's definitely worth it. But um, a book is no easy task. It's about 300 pages and, there are, I think, over 350 footnotes in there, so lots of, of references. Um, but I think that that's because the abortion issue is actually very complex. There's a lot, of, a lot for people to learn on it. And I think oftentimes people only get to kind of hear the surface level part of it and don't get to really dive in. And I think that's the benefit of getting to um, you know, write it all out in a book, is that people can then read it, pass it on to their friends, things like that.
0: Well, who are some of the people that influenced you on the book?
5: Hmm, so many. I mean, I think that probably some of the biggest ones um, was uh, Dr. Alvita King. She's the niece of Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, she's very influential with Civil Rights for the Unborn. Um, Abby Johnson, she also wrote a blurb for my book, which was amazing. She used to be a Planned Parenthood a clinic director and then realized kind of the truth of what abortion was, changed her mind on that. Um, Father Frank Pavone, he is um, in charge of Priests for Life. He's very uh, pro-life, has been for many decades. Um, There's also uh, many political people. Um, Laura Trump also blurbs the book and some others. So so I'm just really grateful to have so many different kinds of voices really speaking up on the pro-life issue. And it was really cool. Today I actually read in Forbes that Ivanka Trump has for the first time said that she is pro-life as well. So um, yeah, there are just so many so many people I think who are jumping on the pro-life train and um, all bringing kind of different perspectives to it. But um, I write about a lot of these different voices in my book and I just kind of wanted to show how you know so many different people can be pro-life.
0: Well, I, I only printed out the notes on the first few chapters because uh, I, I want people to buy the book, but I want them to get an idea of how you address it. And um, one of the chapters you're talking about is that, oh, it's, it's not a human being. It's just a bunch of cells. It's just a cluster of cells. And when they use that, they completely dehumanize the whole issue. But you then debunk that completely.
5: Yeah, I mean, they like to say it's a cluster of cells and so on. But if we actually think about what that means, we are all a cluster of cells. Saying something's a cluster of cells, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's less human or more human. Um, the cell is the basic component of life. But I think that they say that because it sounds cool and it sounds like, oh, the fetus is nothing or the, the baby's nothing, of course. Um, and I think that it's really just all language tactics to basically dehumanize it. When in reality, this child has so many of the same qualities as us. Literally, if we were doing what we were doing to these children, what they wanted to do to puppies and all of these other things, people would be horrified. So we know this is a human being. We know this is human life. And we know that it's um, being tortured in the womb, trapped in the womb. So I think that, yeah, I mean, that was, that's, that's my first chapter because I feel like it's important to dive into the humanity of this being and establish that first before we kind of go into a lot of the other social arguments. Well,
0: here this is, I, I found. Oh, I'm sorry, Curtis. Go ahead.
4: Okay. I mean, it's, it's ironic that um, they would say that it's not really a human being at that point, you know, as a fetus. But in law enforcement, if a woman is murdered or something like that and she's pregnant, then they charge the person with the death of two entities, not one. I I just want to add that.
5: Yeah, exactly. That is the law in many places. And it's actually very sad because in New York, they just changed that law. They made it so that it is no longer a double homicide to kill a pregnant woman, which actually has major implications. It basically means that lunatics out there who go around, you know, stabbing a pregnant woman's stomach, try to steal the baby inside. That basically means nothing now. It means that, you know, that was just some tissue and so on. And, um, It's actually really sick and horrible because we all know that if we saw someone stabbing a pregnant woman's stomach, we would know exactly what is happening. But in the eyes of the law here now, that is no different um, from any other crime. But I think that it's just really telling. It shows that the left realized that, wow, they have this kind of double standard, and in order to allow this abortion on demand, to allow nine-month abortions, they had to change that law recently.
0: Unfortunately, I was living in New York and part of that movement to declare personhood and get that law on the book to making the death of a fetus in the womb an additional murder count. And in just a stroke of a pen, he wiped out decades of hard work we did to recognize that child as a living being. And it it, it breaks my heart to know that, that it no longer exists. You know, as a retired police officer from New York City, uh, it was something that we used as a great weapon to help control domestic violence. And it, it just opened the door again to, you know, further abuse of women, especially if they're pregnant. And it, 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 it's a terrible thing. And hopefully your book will open up some eyes. And talking about eyes opening, one of the paragraphs you have at the Starview book in the intro um, I highlighted it reads: Abortion is the greatest form of mass killing in the world by far. Abortion kills more people than war, famine, and genocide combined. In 2018, HIV/AIDS took 1.7 million lives, and we're worrying about COVID here, right? Um, cancer took 8.2 million, and abortion took, catch this, listeners, 41.9 million lives and that's in 2018 alone this is a worldwide tragedy but we happen to be the worst offenders in the United States we have an abortion industry one might say a factory of mass killing its name is Planned Parenthood incredibly in many people's lives this is a reputable organization and it's finally being uh, recognized as not and being defunded in some states and hopefully federally
5: yeah, exactly. And America is one of the worst offenders on this issue because many people say, oh, well, Danielle, what if we got rid of third-trimester abortions? Women would just go to other countries. And I say, well, they actually don't really allow that in other countries on demand like they do in many states here. So we actually have radical abortion policies really more on par with China and North Korea and places like that. So you couldn't go here, leave here, go to Europe, go to Australia, and so on and say, I want a nine-month abortion on demand or a third trimester abortion on demand and all of this. So um, we have very, very radical abortion policies, and many people are completely against that. They're completely against it. Over 75% of Americans are against second and third trimester abortions. So we could absolutely make progress on this, but um, I think that it really requires kind of you know, changing of hearts and minds, but as well um, in our political sphere.
0: And they always say, well, you put the woman's life in danger if you deny them that abortion. But you also have the argument that that child in the womb is uniquely separate. Yes, there's a placenta holding it to the mother. Uh, Yes, the mother is nourishing the child as it grows. But it has its own identity, its own DNA, its own personality even in the womb. So it... You make the full argument as that is a human being in there.
5: Exactly. And I think we have to remember, too, that there's a big difference between a medical complication versus the um, emotional argument that they're making. And what I think really opens the floodgates to abortion on demand was this idea that it doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the medical complications are and so on. If you want an abortion for any reason, you don't have to justify that reason. Whatever it is, you can just go right in get your abortion. So that's the situation that we're living in. And whenever they dive into a certain situation and so on, I do write about all kinds of situations in the book. But I think it's important to remember that we are not actually talking about that when it comes to what the law is in the country, because in the country, you don't have to provide a justification or reason for your abortion. You can just go in and get it on demand.
0: And then we also have the argument of, well, what about rape and incest? And we've had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of young women. One was a child of rape, and the other one was a child of incest. Uh, that's still human life. And why, I've always asked this question, why would you penalize an innocent child, give it the death penalty for something it had no control over?
5: Right, exactly. And oftentimes they actually want lighter sentences for rapists. They don't actually want them to get the death penalty or life imprisonment or any of this because they side with the rapist and not the child. And I think if we look at a situation like this, we can obviously see that the child had absolutely nothing to do with it and is blameless. And um, when it comes to the woman um, having that kind of painful reminder, I think that adoption is a great option because with closed adoptions that are completely anonymous, there's no connection um, between the child and mother. She can really move on with her life and the child can be raised by people who don't view it in light of that situation and don't see it that way and um, just love it and will raise it. So um, I think it's definitely something that we should actually just try to prevent from occurring in the first place, which I think goes back to what we were talking about with crime laws and uh, the death penalty for rapists and so on. So it is just crazy that they would even actually compare a rapist to an innocent child, but uh, clearly that's that's the debate we're in right now.
0: Yeah, and at least the, the, the woman that had to give the child up, knows at least that child is safe and is growing into a person. Uh, there is a connection to another human being still in the world for that, her individual. She doesn't have the daily reminder of what happened to her in front of her, but at least she knows an innocent life isn't being you know, harmed. However, the consequences of having undergone an abortion to the woman, the mental and physical consequences, no one ever talks about it's like, oh, hey, it's nothing. You just had an abortion. Get on with your life. But there's a real consequence afterwards.
5: Exactly, yeah. I mean, the left really hates to discuss any kind of emotional um, weight that the woman carries afterwards, regret, things like that, because it does really counter the left narrative that abortion empowers women, abortion is this awesome thing that you have to do, Abortion's positive, all of this. And, of course, most women don't actually feel like that. So um, a lot of those women, unfortunately, are very sad, and they don't have people to talk to, but I encourage a lot of them to uh, find healing and use their voice to um, advocate for the unborn and for other women so that they don't end up in that situation as well and um, can hopefully use their voice for good and move on from that situation. Well, there's
0: also the, the physical uh, consequences, too. Now, you, you mentioned in the book about you know, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide for women that have undergone abortion. Uh, but there's also the physical consequences, too, that they may have more miscarriages. There may be other problems later on down the line besides having their uh, reproductive uh, system permanently damaged.
5: Yeah, there are definitely health consequences. Anytime you are forcibly opening a cervix, you know, tearing a placenta, all these things, of course there are, are going to be health complications, uh, miscarriage, all of that. But um, as you mentioned, I mean, the abortion procedure itself, it's, it's pretty scarring and it's pretty intense. And I think the biggest difference between it and childbirth is the fact that in an abortion you're ending a life. And in childbirth you are bringing a life into this world. So although they're both very intense, the abortion procedure is a not a natural procedure, and b um, does not leave you with any kind of you know positive feeling afterwards, especially when it comes to just even the endorphins, all of that, and the physical aspect, as you said as well.
0: Yeah, and it, I was reading about the morning after pill, and everyone thinks that that is the safest way, but when I read you describing what happens and what the woman goes through. It's not the same as like popping a couple of aspirins and the headache goes away. Uh, This is a really painful process, just taking this medication.
5: Yeah, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't actually know about all of these different procedures. They don't know how they work. And so whenever they go in to get an abortion or give them pills and so on, they don't actually know what's going to happen next. Um, and it actually is a very um, intense process. So I hope that more people can even just realize, you know, what they're even considering before they make a decision like that.
0: Oh, absolutely. Now, you are not just about this one book. You happen to be a woman of, of great many talents. You you don't fall far from the tree that your daddy has. There, you know, I'm sure he's extremely proud of you. But people can find your films up on PragerU, Uh, You are with Turning Point USA. You're also on the advisory board for Women for Trump. Hey, we're going to have a ballot box revolution come Tuesday, aren't we?
5: Yes, absolutely. We need everyone turning out to vote, everyone um, making sure you're registered, all of that, because the lives of the unborn really are on the line on this election. And if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win, we will see an overturning of the Hyde Amendment, so we will all be paying for other people's unlimited abortions through federal funding, and there will be a chokehold put on many pregnancy clinics, many crisis pregnancy centers that help women in need. So we definitely need you to show up to the polls.
0: Absolutely. Bring family, bring friends, get a (laughs) busload. Let's do it like Democrats do. (laughs) Bring a busload of people to the polling place. You know, I I think the poll numbers are going to be even worse than what the Democrats think they are. Um, I think where we had the poll numbers saying on the day of the election in 2016 that Hillary was going to be our next president, um, I think it's going to be a double-digit defeat, not a single-digit defeat. What What do you feel?
5: I hope so. I absolutely hope so. I'm spending the weekend in Pennsylvania, we, I was there last weekend as well, also in Michigan, South Texas, different areas, because we really have to reach those swing voters and people who are not necessarily super political, all of that. And, um, yeah, last weekend I was with a lot of Indians for Trump, or at least new, uh, new voters that are, are wanting to vote for Trump. And so, um, so, yeah, I'm really excited this weekend for Pennsylvania. I'm excited for the turnout.
0: Well, I, I always tell this story, and I'm sure my listeners are bored hearing of it. But in 2016, I had two friends, they were a little bit older than I am, who have never voted in their life. And one of them was a military veteran. But they always would complain about what was going on in politics. And I finally goaded them into voting. And when I saw them the next time, it was the day after the election, and they told me they proudly voted for the first time in their life. And they were both in their 70s, and they voted for Trump. Now, if that happened in 2016, Danielle, can you imagine what is happening today? How many people are not talking about it, but are going to go out and vote? I think Trump's going to have a huge landslide.
5: Yeah, there are definitely a lot of people who don't say they're voting for Trump, but they do show up to the polls and uh, they do vote. And so I think the polls are definitely fake news. They were fake news in 2016. So I think that they're going to be fake news again this time. But we're going to find out very soon.
0: Well, you know what? I can I can hear your father speaking through you because when I'm listening to you I'm I'm hearing him saying the same thing. <laughs> so it is a pleasure that we've had both of you uh on the show at one time or another. And I wanna welcome you back. Where can people find you?
5: That's too funny. Um yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Parlor, all of the places. I'm Danielle D'Souza Gill and the book is called The Choice. The Abortion Divide in America. It is a bright pink book, so you won't miss it if you are browsing at Barnes & Noble in the political section. Most of those books are, you know, red, white, and blue or black or white or something. So you will definitely not miss it.
0: Well, actually, I've got ours up on Facebook Live so people watching the video, I've got your picture up there with the picture of the book cover. So if you're looking on Facebook Live, take a look and go. They can get the book on Amazon too, correct?
5: Yes, you can definitely buy the book on Amazon. I think it is discounted at 30% off right now because I'm very happy it's an Amazon bestseller. So definitely grab a copy if you can. Give it to a friend as well. Um, And hopefully it's just spread the pro-life message so that you can be equipped with how to deal with any pro-choice argument thrown your way.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Danielle, and God bless you for the hard work you do. And go Trump.
5: Yes, bless you and thank you for this discussion and for just um, being willing to discuss this issue of life and um, share it with your listeners.
0: And you'll find I'm one of the few people that actually read the author's books.
5: <laughs> yes, yes, I love that you read the book. That is awesome. I know that um, that it makes it very special because you get to ask questions and discuss things that, that you came across in the book, and I'm sure your listeners and hopefully readers will um, you know, find that really helpful. Well,
0: actually, if you get a signed copy, you can always mail me one. I have a, behind me on the bookshelf, besides my Trumpy bear, all the authors that I've interviewed with their autographed books. And I've got to add yours to the collection now.
5: Oh, well, thank you. Hopefully I can do an event or be near you. I think you're in South Carolina, so hopefully I yeah. can come down your way. Oh, All right. And well, can some I ask something? Books. Go ahead, Curtis.
3: Can I add something?
4: I had the pleasure yep. of meeting her father. And um, he has one of my books, The Conservative Prodigy. So um, hopefully you get around to reading it. <laughs> it's a great guy.
5: That's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much, and it was really nice chatting with you guys.
0: It is All our right. pleasure, and to come back on the show again, definitely.
5: Oh, thank you. I'd love to.
0: Okay, check out. Uh, Danielle Dinesh-Gill, and her website is her name, Danielle com, And check out her book called The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. It's an important book. I, I'm telling you listeners out there to go get it and read it because it's really eye-opening. There were things in there I thought I knew about, and boy, did she knock it out of the ballpark. It really it helps you with the debate on pro-life to pro-choice you can get yourself a greater, greater argument by just using some of the information she has in that book. It's, it's unbelievable, the facts that she comes up with and the truth. And you read about it in how different people thought they were pro-choice and some of them were abortionists after doing thousands of these and finally have it hit them in the head with like a baseball bat or a two-by-four, you know, exactly what is going on and what the consequences are. And one touch one was of a certain doctor having done thousands of these and then lost his child. And suddenly he was looking at those baby parts on the table with a completely different outlook. And she talks about Abby Johnson, uh, who was a director of a Planned Parenthood, and one day she was assisting with an abortion. She had never done that before. And just by looking at the ultrasound and watching the baby jump away from the abortionist's needle, Oh, it just like I said I was crying at certain times it will just it's an excellent excellently written book and at times you're going to have to put it down take a deep breath walk away and then pick it back up again uh it it will really open your eyes All right Curtis did I lose yeah, you Curtis I, Oh I'm
4: here
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I um uh, sent off a notice for um cat to call in And I just got a text back from one of her handlers, and I don't understand this because we talked about this a week ago, and she said maybe there's been a miscommunication. Can she call in later? And I do not know if that's possible
0: because we have other
4: people scheduled at this time.
0: Well, if she calls in at 2.30 um, we have Drew McKissick, who is the South Carolina GOP chair. So maybe we can have her interviewed at the same time we talk to Drew, because uh, Drew is calling in directly after her. Uh, anyway, uh, but I should talk about you know a little bit about Cat uh, because this is what the left is doing. They're doing major, major intimidation, not just of people wearing mega hats, um, but she's up against a to put it politely, a rather immature Democratic opponent who put out in public her personal address. Now, her husband happens to be a first responder. And in Florida, putting out in public uh, a first responder's home address is illegal. And Curtis, is this your your friend here now? Okay, he's double-checking. So publishing to the public, and he put it out on on his Twitter field, Uh, Twitter feed, and people showed up at her home. They were in her driveway banging pots and pans, causing a ruckus, Uh, and then putting her life and her husband's life in danger. And he had to drive through these protesters on his property in order to get to work. So um, hopefully this is who we have on the phone, and we'll wait for Curtis to come back in. And Curtis, okay, yes, we do. All right, Why don't I want to welcome our next victim up on uh, the block, Kat Kamak, who was running for Congress out of Florida's District 3, uh, the district that our friend Uncle Ted, as I call him, Ted Yoho, uh, is representing. Hopefully she will replace him. It looks like it's a good chance. So welcome aboard, Kat. How are you doing?
2: We're doing excellent. Thank you so much for having me on today.
0: Our oh, it pleasure. It is our pleasure. And I happen to be a retired first responder, and when I was reading the news articles about what happened, how you were doxed, and how you had antifa at your doorstep, it really kicked me off. Because uh, the New York State Isn't they keep that on trying. Yeah, you know it's illegal to put a first responder's home address out there because you don't know who is pissed off at you if they're going to come and assault you because you arrested them or you helped with an arrest or whatever it is you did. You know, you put that person's family in danger, and that's what they did to you. Now, is he going to be prosecuted for this?
2: You know, I don't know uh, what actions are going to be taken against him. I, I've been pretty disappointed in in the lack of, of response um, on this, because especially today with this attack that we're seeing on first responders around the country and their families, to be docs like that and and have your political opponent publish your address, knowing full well that, you know, your husband is a first responder. He's not just a firefighter. He's also a SWAT medic. And, you know, with all the SWAT call-outs that he does, he could be leaving at any hour and, and often does on these call-outs, which are very um, high-risk call-outs. And, you know, when, when we woke up on Sunday morning and had protesters on our driveway, on our private road, which that private road is actually our property, and they're parking in my neighbor's yards. that's just incredible. I mean, he could be going down the driveway on his way out to, to a SWAT call out, which could potentially be any number of things. Um, in this case, he was headed to the fire station for his 24-hour shift, but... It's just an an incredible thing that, that I feel like my opponent hasn't really grasped the gravity of what he did and, and his team to then continue to question, well, it's a, you know, they say it's a public road. Well, you know, we, we actually live in reality and we operate off of facts, not, you know, this alternative, alternative uh, reality that they that they have created for themselves. But, you know, it's it's just ridiculous that there hasn't been more Um, outrage about it i think that we should of course uh, respect the first amendment and people's ability to peacefully assemble but not on private property and you know if if these folks were interested in actually having a, a positive and productive conversation they could have at any time called my office and set up an appointment but they've never made any attempt to do that instead they want to create noise and cause chaos and when you're holding signs outside someone's home that says white silence equals white violence or no justice, no peace, that's not a sign that you're there to do anything productive. And, and I think that people should be very concerned about the state of affairs in America when political opponents are encouraging the doxing of, of their opponents, when they are um, sharing their information, encouraging people to go protest outside their homes, and, and blatantly violating law. That That is just a sad state of affairs in America, and, and it's time that we push back and say enough is enough.
0: Well, not only that, as I was reading it, in today's environment, um, they could have actually followed him onto one of his calls and created a riot yeah. and caused an interference with their duties. You know, someone's life could actually be placed in jeopardy if he cannot respond in time. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. A hundred percent, you know, and, and um, you know, a few weeks ago, my husband was on a SWAT call out for a barricaded subject that had um, basically barricaded themselves but others within a home, and, and it was a, a very big, massive call out. We've had situations where he's responding to uh, gang activity and, and you know, murders that, um and murder suspects. You're right. They absolutely could have followed him out to these call-outs, which are very sensitive and volatile situations. And I think there's just this lack of, of respect for people and private property, but also for law enforcement. There's just this, this complete disregard for, for the service and the sacrifice that, that these first responders make for their communities and um, in this case ignorance is not bliss uh, I, I think that we have definitely gone astray particularly with our youth in in this whole defund police movement
0: now, what came to me worse is that he went up on Twitter and was laughing and you know then he later on turns around basically calls you a liar when you turn around and object to what he has done
2: mm-hmm. yeah uh, well my my opponent has made his entire platform um, about obsessing over myself and my family, and and he's made up an entirely fake life story for me. Um, it, it's really embarrassing for him that he he's not focused on the issues. He cares nothing about uh, what he can do to make the community better, but instead has done nothing but attempted character assassination and. And a completely negative campaign that is based solely on made-up stories that he and his followers have concocted in their minds. It's again a sad state of affairs when this is what uh, people spend their time and energy on. I personally have have been focusing on running an issue-based campaign that's positive, that's focused on solutions. It would be amazing if all campaigns did that, because we would actually be able to have these productive conversations that that resulted in, in actual progress being made in our communities.
0: Well, you know, okay. you said a very interesting, I was going to ask her a better background, but go ahead, Curtis.
4: I was just going to say, as we all know, the left will lie and use every trick in and outside the book to win, but uh, to reassure you. I see your signs all around Putnam County, where I live, and you have a lot of support here. So I have no doubt that you will be victorious come Tuesday.
2: Thank you. Well, and actually, you know, my husband, in between shifts at the firehouse, he's out putting those signs up and um, it's not like he doesn't have a full-time job already. The poor man is out putting up those signs all over the district, <laughs> so that'll make him feel good that, that people are seeing him out and about, and, and he's worked very hard to, to make sure that all our road signs are out there, so I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Well, I was going to bring out your background because you came from a, a, a generational family business. Uh, you know what it is to run a business, but you also know what it is to be at one point homeless. And this is where you and Ted Yoho finally got together and you began working for him. Um, so you can yes. look at issues, the everyday issues of the everyday person, knowing that you personally lived
2: Mhm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I grew up the daughter of a single mother, and uh, my mom worked very, very hard to, to raise my my sister and I and, we, um, we had a small cattle ranch um, out west, and, and she ran our family business that she took over from her mother. And it was a commercial sandblasting and monument operation and uh, not something that you traditionally see women doing, um, that kind of heavy labor. But, you know, we, we had a, a great small family business that, you know, we were all involved in, and it was really where I learned – what it meant to to have a a strong work ethic because my mom, you know, she was up in the morning feeding horses, chickens, and cows, and then she would drive into Denver and and run the business and then come home and do that and make sure, you know, my sister and I were doing our homework and taking care of everything, and uh, so I really learned my work ethic from her. But in the process of growing up in that business, you know, you really start to understand the challenges that a small business goes through, just even from the basic, you know, management, uh, compliance, insurance, payroll issues. And so I started out, I actually took my first steps as, as a baby um, at our shop. Um, and our, my home videos include me, you know, helping sweep floors and in, in, in the shop and and working on job sites. and. Throughout the years, I, I grew up really learning how to run the business, and and uh, also saw how government really started creeping in. It wasn't until I was a teenager that I, I really understood, you know, why why all these regulatory agencies were involved in our everyday life, and if it was the Department of Labor or OSHA or the EPA, we were constantly seeing and hearing all these new regulations, that really didn't make uh, the job site safer. It didn't make it any better for, for us, you know, as, as employees. Um, so I just kind of understood the regulatory environment was more so about red tape and, and really perpetuating this, this feeding of fines and fees into the agency that it would continue to grow it in size. And that's when, in 2011, you know, post-recession, everything, everybody was hurting. And, you know, we had um, made the decision to remodify our home loan. And in 2000, I think it was nine. 2009 is when Obama had launched his uh, key housing initiative that was designed in his words, to keep people in their homes. Because, you know, rates went down, everybody was trying to remodify their loans, and so we went ahead and and decided we were going to do a refi on our mortgage, not knowing that the legislation that he had championed called the HAMP program was really incentivized to have the big banks get more money for pushing people out of their homes. So you go through a, a six- to eight-month remodification process, and the banks figured out very quickly that at the end of that refi process, They could lose the loan and make more money than if they had kept it. So our family, along with 7 million other people around the country, found ourselves homeless. And my mom and I, you know, we had 23 days to evict, and um, it it was a pretty traumatic experience. And we, you know, were putting our belongings in horse trailers and, you know, selling what we could. And um, it, it was awful. And I remember... We had enough money for the first night to stay in a La Quinta off the highway. And um, following that, we ended up staying in an extended stay motel that was in a not so great part of town, but it's all that we could afford. And um, it was during that time that I got a call from a a friend, and he said, my uncle is running for Congress in Florida, and I think you you do well. I, at that point, had graduated college and was looking for a job, and um, so I, I made it to florida and after that joined the campaign and after we won uh joined the official office and um so that's that that experience of you know losing everything and you know directv actually bought our property and bulldozed our house and our barn and um you look at the the satellite images today and there's there's nothing there but one building and um and, and as traumatic and painful as that is um, that was the turning point in my life that really led me to get involved in politics so that no family ever has to experience what I went through again.
0: Oh, man. If it is anything, you have done a lot of great initiatives for Congressman Ted Yoho. So you have a working knowledge on how to get things through Congress by being his campaign manager and then his chief of staff. So it's not as if you're going in there without knowing what the heck you're, you're stepping into.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's, that's very important and valuable, uh, particularly for our district. Um, he, he, there is such a steep learning curve for a true freshman going to Washington. You know, it's not just, hey, you have a labyrinth of hallways and knowing where the bathrooms are. It is procedure. It is committee work. Uh, the schedule is grueling. and it's a lot for any person to take. So having, having eight years of experience really um, behind the scenes and, and helping make it happen is very important um, as we, we look to begin this in, in the 117th Congress. And um, I think that gives us a leg up. And, and as I've talked to other members uh, post-primary, we have talked about the fact that you know, we'll be able to start working on really critical legislation immediately um, there's several great pieces of legislation that uh, we are we are already talking about and looking to champion, and I think that more than ever, people are hungry for folks that are willing to um, just dive in and, and give that leadership and really get something done. We, we are constantly in this state, I call it Groundhog Day, where, you know, it's just a lot of finger pointing going on and we're not getting anything done and the American people deserve better than that. I know um, that, you know, I've, I've watched my frustration over the years grow with the lack of, of work being done because it's just, uh, he said, she said it's the other person's other side's fault. And I think we're, we're better than that. And more than ever in, in 2021, we, we need to do so much to, to make up for how
0: terrible 2020 has been. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at your previous, um, uh, 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 issues, and he sounds like he's echoing AOC and the other three. Uh, so we do need a good, solid, conservative voice in there. I was going to ask one question just before you, Curtis. Um, your chief of staff, when you do become a congresswoman, is that going to be Uncle Ted? <laughs>
2: I think Ted's gonna go fishing for a while. I, I've known him for a very long time, and I don't think I've ever seen him this frustrated. Uh, so I, I think he's gonna take a well-deserved long vacation and spend some time with family and, and do that fishing that he's been longing to do. Um, we, we haven't, we have not finalized our team yet. Um, actually, it's it's um, unethical as a candidate to. Uh, talk about jobs or promised jobs. So we have not made any plans as far as our official team, but I'm very excited about the opportunity, um, that, that lies ahead. You know, we're going to be going in as the youngest Republican woman in both the house and the Senate. And I, I take that as, as a huge responsibility, um, not just as a woman, but as a millennial, Um uh, I do believe that Millennials and Gen Z's are inheriting, uh, you know, the the sins of our fathers and mothers that have, you know, spent uh, an ungodly amount of money. Um, We have deficit spending, $27 trillion in national debt. Our mandatory spending is out of control. We have a lot of work that we have to do, and it's, it's really that financial burden is on my generation and the one coming right behind me. So I think it's time that we have a seat at the table and, and really work to right the ship before we go down. And so um, I'm excited about that. You're right. You know, my opponent, he is Mr. Green New Deal and socialized medicine. He would love to see a, a huge federal government that controls every aspect of our lives. And I think that's the difference, really, fundamentally. I believe that the people are the answer, and my opponent believes that government's the answer. I've been a victim to a big, bloated government program, and I've seen it firsthand. And no matter what lies he decides to tell on any given day, you know, I think Vice President Pence said it best, you are entitled to your own opinions, but you are not entitled to your own facts.
0: Curtis, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I just want to say... Once you get in to Congress, um, give AOC a piece of my mind. That woman is crazy. She she has big ideas that are bad for this country, and she has a big mouth.
2: <laughs> That's
4: all I want to comment well,
2: on. Uh, you you can rest assured, C-SPAN is going to start looking a little more like pay-per-view in the 117th Congress.
4: <laughs> yeah, just have one of those women-to-women talk with her.
2: <laughs> uh, well, it's tough to it's tough to play that victim card um, with someone who has really lived the life that that you claim to to have lived. You know, I, I think AOC has a lot of ideas, and she's very passionate, and you know, God bless her for it. But you can't champion the issue of of housing insecurity when you've never been housing insecure. Um, I myself have been homeless, so I think I have a little bit more street cred, literally, when it comes to that issue, and I don't believe that government is the answer because government is what landed me in that position. And, you know, there's just a whole host of issues that we're going to differ on completely, and uh, we're going to have those policy discussions, but I think it also presents an opportunity for for us to really – Talk about the issues in a way without attacking the person. You know, it's it's um it's something that we haven't seen a lot of. And and uh, like I said, C-SPAN's going to be looking a little bit more uh, spicy come January.
4: <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're going to watch right.
0: head explode. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was watching Pat uh, McCarthy uh, at the Trump rally saying, you know. Uh, He's looking forward to the day when Pelosi hands the gavel over to him. <laughs>
3: yes. But, uh,
0: and I was I was looking at your list of endorsements. You know, everything from the NRA and uh, President Trump. You know, you have fellow legislators, yeah. massive number of law enforcement, sheriffs and officers uh, endorsing you. You know, this is this is really I'm, I'm feeling really good for you
2: thank you. I mean, it's it, it's probably the most humbling thing when someone puts their name uh, on the line for you and says, you know, I'm putting my stamp of approval because it's just, uh, you know, the, it's their reputation as well. And um, you're, you said it best. I mean, we we have a, a lot of law enforcement, pretty much every sheriff, um, all the way down to, to Grady Judd, who's not in my district, but um, uh, famous for being a tough lawman and um, so we're excited about all of the endorsements that, that we've received and from the hometown mayors to, you know, industry and business leaders all the way up to the president of the United States. And I have to tell you, it is such an honor to have the endorsement of the president of the United States. Uh, it's one of those things where you're just kind of in awe uh, that um, in, in a free constitutional republic, uh, the man who is, who is really leading the America First agenda, it has put his trust in you to, to lead in your district and lead for 710,000 people. It's, it's very humbling and, and uh, motivating. So uh, I'm very excited, and, and I told the president I won't let him down.
0: Well, uh, our buddy Curtis here posted in our chat room, and we're also up on Facebook Live, too, uh, as well as all the other markets, including WCET, uh, out of Columbia, South Carolina. But he said that you're going to have a cat fight with AOC. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I, I think Curtis is, is, is got some wishful thinking going on here. <laughs>
4: No, what I said was she doesn't want to get into a cat fight with (laughs) cat.
2: No, no, I I, I would caution anyone who's looking to get into a fight with a cat. You know, we do have nine lives.
4: Because I've seen your commercials, (laughs) and and I I know what kind of rifle you carry.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not – it's not just uh, Miss AOC that I'm looking forward to, to having a few conversations with, though. You know, uh, right. Ilhan Omar out of Minnesota. Nancy Pelosi. Um, oh, and Nancy Pelosi. God bless her heart. You know, she has been in office longer than I have been alive.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, I can tell you've been to the South for a while because the second a Southern woman says, bless your heart, you better start running for the door. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well Cat, people can find you. Your website is catforcongress dot com, correct?
2: Yes, ma'am, it is. Cat with a cat right. with a K and Congress with a C.
0: And even though they don't live in your district, they can still go onto your website and give you support. So Cat, good luck and I'm looking forward to you being the replacement for our friend Congressman Uncle Ted Yoho in Florida District Three. And, uh, you know, Uncle Ted got into a little tiff with AOC recently. I can just imagine what you're going to do once you get to Congress.
2: I'm looking forward to it. Stay tuned, and I look forward to coming back as a member-elect and, and visiting with you guys. And thank you so much for having me on. And please, yes, do visit our website. It is catforcongress.com. Folks can learn more about us, sign up for our newsletter, um, as well as donate. Every, everything that we're doing right now is helping get votes out for President Trump and Republicans all the way down the ballot. So every dollar helps, and uh, I appreciate everyone's consideration. Have a, a very safe Halloween weekend.
0: Yes, and Sorry, God Congress bless Cat. Good luck. Kat. We'll see you partying on Thank November first, like at 1776. Good luck, Cat. Thank you.
3: <laughs> All
0: right, Cat. Check out Cat at CatForCongress dot com and give her campaign a support. And now I'm sending a virtual hug through the airwaves to a dear friend of mine. I like to consider him a friend of mine, Drew McKissick. He is the chair of the South Carolina GOP. Good afternoon, Drew. How are you?
1: i'm doing well ma'am how about yourself
0: i am doing fine and i'm looking forward to uh, the the uh coming tuesday now were you there at the rally when i did the pledge of allegiance
3: uh
1: yes ma'am yes i was i was there i was in the back of the room
0: (laughs) how did you like the way i got the crowd started Ballot box revolution.
1: (laughs) Well, look, I mean, our folks right now, and you've run into this, and you know it, you've seen it too, are incredibly enthusiastic. And if there's one thing that we have had over the Democrats since day one, uh, as our people are more enthusiastic, Republicans are more enthusiastic than Democrats, Trump supporters are more enthusiastic than Biden supporters, it doesn't matter which poll you may be looking at, even the ones that have suspect sampling and, you know, I think are probably garbage, but the one thing that they're all consistent in is that Republicans are anywhere from 10 to 20 points uh, more enthusiastic in terms of saying that they're enthusiastic to get the polls on Election Day, and I've been working in this business for 32 years. I can tell you I will take an enthusiastic voter over just a voter any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Because enthusiastic people work. They get other folks to go to the polls with them. They make phone calls. They knock on doors. And that's the energy that we've got going for us right now.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's funny because it was about two months ago or maybe more, I had someone knocking on my door that early. And I've seen them mm-hmm. around the neighborhood yeah. you know, knocking on doors. You don't see the Democrats out there knocking on doors. No. No.
1: And that, you know, no. that's the interesting thing about this cycle, uh, because. Uh, again, this is out of, out of 32 years of working in this business here in South Carolina, in politics. This is the first election cycle ever that the Republicans have had a ground game and the Democrats have not. Uh, and I think it all goes back to coronavirus business. They, early on, made the bet that they were going to be able to go into courtrooms across America and you know, impose this you know mail-in balloting system in as many places as they possibly could And part and parcel of that was getting everybody, you know, scared of coronavirus. You know, well, we can't go vote in person. we got to be able to have to vote by mail. It's going to be deadly, blah, blah, blah.
3: Well, they got their crowd so
1: overly worked up and scared about it that once they saw they weren't making the traction with the lawsuits to make this stuff happen all across the country, it was too late to try to turn on a dime and gin their folks up into a ground game. And so now they've been caught with their pants down. They've got no ground game here in South Carolina. The Biden campaign doesn't have one nationally. It's all TV and all digital. And to make matters worse for them, we on the Republican side, here in South Carolina specifically, uh, our get-out-the-vote-ground game is legitimately bigger than anything the South Carolina Republican Party has ever done by about a factor of seven, if that gives you any indication of scale. Uh, we have knocked already over half a million doors around South Carolina, probably another 70,000 before the election's over. We'll get up close to 600 in total. And again, that's just the doors that we, the state party, are paying to knock, not counting the volunteer doors that get knocked, the, the doors that candidates, down ballot candidates, are knocking around the state. And then you add to that the phone calls and the text messages, et cetera, et cetera, and everything that goes with it, in the events. Uh, again, our people are enthusiastic, and that ground game is going to matter when it comes to actually getting votes to the polls because, as you know, that's the only poll that really matters is on Election Day when they total the votes up, period.
0: Yeah, and we've been getting phone calls here in my household, and my husband picked up on one of them going, oh, yes, we're voting. <laughs> it's really enthusiastic, and I have to laugh. Of course, know, here I am. I'm I'm the leader of the Buford Tea Party, so you know, this, what do you think you don't know what you're calling, obviously. But uh, I actually had one from Beer Can Joe. I actually had one from Beer Can Joe. And so I kind of uh, like brushed them off. I didn't say anything. Uh, but, well, and I've actually I, had uh, two Trump signs stolen from me. I had oh, two really? Trump signs oh, stolen.
1: Well, I've, I've heard a good bit of that. I mean, yeah, it's, it, well, actually, you know, I don't know if you saw this story or not.
0: The chairman
1: of the Georgetown County Election Commission had resigned because he and his wife were out walking their dog, and defaced faced a Trump sign, uh, and they got caught on a deer camera. And it turned out it was the activist who caught him. was one of the guys who was putting out signs for the Georgetown County Party. And, you know, he wakes up the next morning and, you know, there's all this sort of, you know, this stuff written all over the sign and a magic marker, dump Trump, blah, 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 blah. And so he checked his deer camera and lo and behold, there was the chairman of the county election commission and his wife who was in charge of absentee ballots, et cetera, and poll worker training. Uh, And uh, so, you know, we had it verified there with the sheriff's department and, uh got them involved, and he uh, had to resign about a week and a half ago and his wife as well.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can't make It reminds me
0: of one woman that was running uh, at that time that she thought that someone had uh, vandalized her car, and it was pollen, if you remember. Uh, yeah. That was yeah. what, in the yeah. Myrtle area. Yes. Yeah. Uh, It's like no, lady, live in the (laughs) south; it's called pollen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I think you know people know people know know what's at stake in this election, and uh, and and they got you know a refresher course on that, if you will, when uh, you know uh, Justice Ginsburg passed away, and the president nominated uh, Miss Barrett. Uh, and then, you know, of course, the key role that uh, Senator Graham was able to play in that confirmation process, not to mention the hundreds of other district and uh, appellate court judges uh, that the president has been able to seat in the last three and a half years. Um, and that, that's, that's the kind of thing that is at stake at this, in this election. And, uh, you know, I, it's a cliche. I say it all the time. Uh, but elections have consequences. You know, policy matters. Who you hire matters. Um, and uh, our people are definitely taking it to heart. Oh,
0: well, absolutely, and it's a close race between Harrison and uh, Graham, and I was screaming at the TV the other day. Go! I was watching the Graham commercials. I was asking why he wasn't getting more aggressive, and then yesterday I finally heard the commercials, and I said this at the start of the show. Normally we elect someone to Congress, uh, either to the House or the Senate, and then after they decide not to run for election and they retire a short time later, they become K Street lobbyists. This time, we have a lobbyist running for Congress. Yeah. He's doing it the other way. <laughs> He's and coming I, the other I way, way through beat, the
1: revolving door.
0: <laughs> yeah. But no one's telling anyone that this guy happens to be a Social Democrat and yeah. a lobbyist. Oh, yeah. He is a Keith Ellison protege and a James yeah. Clyburn, you know, a copycat.
1: Well, look, he spent $120 million, and, and, and think about that for a minute now, $120 million. Now, the first presidential campaign that broke the $100 million barrier in terms of a budget was George W. Bush in the 2000 election. Uh, we have I mean, again, just, you know, 16 years ago or so, this was a presidential campaign budget, and he's spending this in one state, and out of all of those TV ads, you will not find one single one Where he ever mentions the word Democrat period and there's a Reason for that is because he's Figured out being a Democrat is not a Resume enhancement in South Carolina <laughs> That Voters tend to reject the National Democratic Party by the way Of which he is a co-chairman he doesn't Mention that in his ads uh, You know and yep. he has all the bags that comes along With that uh, but I think they're getting desperate I think two measures Of the desperation recently one uh, early last week, you saw the ad he had that he's rolled out in certain places with Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama, talking to the camera, calling him my friend Jamie Harrison. Well, you don't drag out a guy who lost South Carolina twice, along with all his liberal baggage, to endorse your campaign unless you're worried about turning out the African-American vote, that you're worried that it's not showing up the way you need it to show up. So they're getting worried uh, because that's a risky move to make because of all the baggage that Obama brings. And then number two all of the deceptive ads that they've run themselves, along with these shady, out-of-state, uh, you know, super PACs that they stood up here a week ago, uh, pushing ads to get folks to vote for the third-party candidate, Bill Bledsoe, uh, who has, by the way, endorsed Lindsey Graham. Um, so that, to me, is a measure of their desperation. They're up against the wall now, uh, and, um, you know, I, I think uh, we're doing what we need to do. We're executing. We're getting our folks out to the polls. Early voting lines have been tremendously long. We're seeing the type of turnout we think we need to see. Uh, And, um, you know, for everybody out there listening, I would say if you have not early voted yet, please go do so. Uh, The more Republicans who early vote now, that's one less person standing in line on Election Day for those, you know, occasional, maybe kind of, uh, we call it the uh the low propensity republicans you know who they kind of turn out if the lines aren't long or if the weather's okay or whatever we don't want them rolling past the polls and seeing a line so long that they turn around so if you haven't early voted yet i highly encourage you to do so i did so myself last friday uh go just before lunchtime usually you miss the morning rush and the afternoon rush it's a good time to go
0: well our our voting poll is right down the street from us and since my husband and i are both disabled we're just going to pull up to the front door let them come there after us. Which is, there we go. That's but I gotta right. tell you, the I got a mailer I got a I got a mailer in the uh yesterday and I, I opened it up and I started cracking up. It was from the Harrison campaign. And I started to glance at it and you know it is so very deceptive the way he has it. And it's just a single little fold over piece of paper where, you know, the Republican Party is putting out these really beautiful, you know, uh, flyers. Um he, I did a quick look, and I went League of Conservative Voters, and I went back. No, League of Conservation Voters. And then he puts in an endorsement from the Human Rights Campaign and then from uh-huh. the National Education Association. So now, you know, being South Carolina, we're really big on conservation, fine, but human rights and national education, uh, wait a minute, that's a huge red flag to South Carolinians. I think he may have made a mistake with this one.
1: Well. I mean, you know, again, you well know all the ideological baggage that those organizations come with, uh, you know, and where they're coming from in terms of, you know, where the average South Carolinian is in terms of our philosophy here. I mean, these are, you know, these these national groups that have radical agendas in many cases, uh, which, you know, quite frankly are of a piece and fellow travelers with the National Democrat Party will understand that. Um, and, you know, they, they want to take this country to a place that, you know, Folks in this state don't want to go, which is why, again, you know, in his ads, you don't hear him talking about the specifics of issues. Either he's criticizing Lindsey or it's the warm, fuzzy Jamie Harrison biography spots about how he grew up and his granddad, and this and that and so forth. Well, all that's great, but what you actually going to do? What do you believe? What's your motivating principles and philosophy? How, what, You know, would you have voted for Judge Barrett? Will you vote to actually try to pack the court now that we've got six conservative justices on there for the first time since the 1930s? You know, are you going to try to change the rules in the middle of the game here now that y'all aren't getting what you want out of the judiciary? Uh, You know, top Europeans care about that kind of stuff and people, they might actually take it into account at the ballot box, which is why he doesn't want to answer the questions. I mean, we know that, but, um, but it's just, just very, it's it's deceptive. And again, I mean, we're having, you know, uh, when you look at his money, uh, and the money he's raised, only 2.7 percent of it has come from South Carolina. 2.7 percent. Uh, and if you figure an average donation of about 50 bucks out of 120 million dollars, well, that means there are over two million people outside of South Carolina—think Hollywood, New York, Washington D.C., etc.—who are essentially trying to buy a U.S. Senate seat in South Carolina. Uh, these are not people who believe what we believe, and you know it's my personal opinion. There's not enough gold in Fort Knox to get the voters of South Carolina to sell their Senate seat to a bunch of out-of-state liberals.
0: Well, you know it's funny because ever since you took over the chair of our state GOP, I've seen a vitality in it, and you have reached out into areas past chairs were very, I don't, know, leery or cautious about reaching out to. And one of the things you have been reaching out to are the churches. Now, the church I belong to happens to be an Anglican church. And I'm sure you're aware of the split between Mm -hmm. the Anglican and the Episcopal and the Right. And our church actually is the one that has old Sheldon, (laughs) that uh, Sherman burned down. Uh, (laughs) Our pastor did something I didn't expect. He actually weighed into the political arena by sending out an email to people And in a way that he kind of like coded it without directly saying who to vote for, but basically telling people how to vote, that we are a conservative faith-based church. And that's something that you have stepped into that I've never seen done before here in South Carolina, explaining how you can have your church involved Mm -hmm. politically and to help bring moral values back to our nation.
1: Well, you know, I mean, you've got... Uh, and, and liberals have done this for the better part of 50 years now, uh, and that is try to scare uh, churches and those involved in churches, whether it's you know, ministers or other church leaders, much less parishioners, into uh, you know, keeping the, uh, the, the uh, civic arena, if you will, uh, separate from their church. look, I mean, you know, we have values. We all believe certain things. And, you know, we we walk out of our church on Sunday or whenever. uh, We don't lay those things down at the door when we leave. You know, we take them with us. We live them. Uh, And the point is, if we are not living out those things that we believe and we say that we believe uh, and that we talk about in church on Sunday, if we're not living those things out uh, Monday through Saturday, including when we go to the ballot box, then, you know, you can make a case that you really don't believe them very strongly. Uh, and I think that's the thing that a lot of ministers are beginning to wake up to and other church leaders is, you know, if, if we don't encourage our folks, you don't have to talk about party, don't have to mention party. If we don't encourage our folks just to go to the ballot box and vote your biblical values, vote your faith, vote your values, that's all you have to do because if you let your values in that case be your guide, then at least to the extent that you know the issues about the candidates and where they stand on things, you'll be able to make an informed decision. Uh, and uh, this country will be immeasurably, uh, immeasurably better off for it. Uh, our churches and other religious institutions and charities around the country will be better off. We'll be able to continue to do what they do. Because, you know, we're getting to a place in this country now where there are liberals who want to use the heavy hand of government to interfere in being able to live out your faith in your daily life now and what conservative and Christian charities uh, in everyday life, what Christian conservative business owners can do with their business and how they run their business. Uh, You know, this stuff is getting, uh, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, it's getting personal. It's getting really personal. Uh, And, um, you know, more and more so every day, and it will continue to do so uh, as long as, uh, you know, more people of faith don't stand up.
0: Oh, that's what we definitely need. You know what I love is not just the revitalization we see of the nation under President Trump, but what you personally have done for our state party. Because yes, I do read your emails you send me, and you have been putting out you've been putting out educational emails or the voter guides, how to become a, in, involved, and if you do start a group, how you can get your group to you know be wider communication. And it's, it's right. great information put out there, um, and I have to laugh because you know I, I was pulling all this stuff up, and um, you were comparing Nancy Mace to Beer Can Joe. I still I'm not going to drop that name. I actually stood outside his <laughs> office here in downtown Buford with the sign that called him Beer Can Joe with the cans of his craft <laughs> beer on the <laughs> I used to do graphic arts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know The only two really oh, close, close close Races I see is between Harrison and Graham and Mason Cunningham What are you hearing mm-hmm. on your end?
1: Uh, well look I think at the end of the day Senator Graham's going to be fine because Donald Trump's going to carry South Carolina uh, I think in the case of the first congressional district I think the top of the ticket is going to be The deciding factor there uh, You know Nancy's run a, run a strong campaign She's She's raised a lot of money. She's been an incredibly good fundraiser. She actually outraised uh, Cunningham in the last uh, quarter uh, here at the stretch. Uh, you know, she's able to uh, double down on her uh, media buys versus what he's been able to do, which is unusual. You know, to outraise an incumbent, so she's been very strong on that. And again, when I couple that uh, with the ground game that we've been able to employ, uh, about a quarter of a million of the doors that I referenced earlier that we've knocked, that we, that we the state party has paid to knock has specifically been within the first congressional district. Uh, you can compare that to about 20,000 that we were able to knock two years ago uh, in the last campaign. So by a factor of 10, we've we got a stronger ground game than two years ago. I think that that makes a difference on Election Day. Um, and then, again, having Senator Graham on the ballot down there as well helps turn out more folks on top of the ticket. Uh, so, you know, when you average those things to get I mean, anytime you're running against an incumbent, you don't take it for granted because it's always harder to beat an incumbent but it is still a Republican district. Uh, so when I add all those things together, I think she's got a good shot at winning on Tuesday.
0: Yeah, because we have in the county that indivisible with the George Soros movement in here, and they've been pretty, yep. pretty, pretty active. Um, but we also had a court ruling. SCOTUS had ruled in favor of South Carolina on challenging uh, ballots that are not postmarked and ballots that have don't have verifying signatures on it. We went. Mm-hmm. in one direction with the Supreme Court giving us a favorable ruling, but recently a judge had stepped a little bit of that back. And I, it took me a while to try to understand exactly what this judge did. Basically, the judge said, well, if the signatures don't exactly match, but they're close enough, let them go. And that's how I read it. Well, you,
1: there, there are two different things. One is the witness signature on the absentee ballot. Um, that was uh, an issue that we fought all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and a couple of weeks ago we won that case uh, that, would, that requires, that the, you know, the state law says there has to be a witness signature on an absentee ballot. Well, that was one of the things that Democrats had sued to try to get rid of. Uh, they wanted to get rid of that. They wanted to be able to do ballot harvesting. Uh, they wanted to be able to do you know drop boxes hither and thither, and uh, there was a whole buffet table of things they wanted to do that would essentially make voter fraud easier let's just call it what it is that's what they were trying to do. Um, we successfully beat all that back uh and the what happened here this past week uh earlier this week was essentially the judge in that case um, the judge in that case threw. I'm sorry. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm waiting for you. Okay. I'm sorry. My my phone was making some funny noises. Uh, the judge <laughs> in that case essentially threw out, essentially uh, the rest of the case. So, you know, they were filing for an injunction to you know win this that and the other thing, and by throwing out the rest of that case, he essentially threw out a related case that was filed. One was by the League of Women Voters, and one was, one was by the National Democrat the State Democrat Party. The one thing that he did do was he said that. Uh, that some of the counties that were planning to use signature comparison machines, not witness signature comparisons, now but this is the actual voter signature, uh, that they were not able to do that because technically, and this is a technicality, but it is state law. Technically, in state law, it doesn't say that you can do that. It says that you can compare signatures at the polling place whenever someone signs the register, whenever they you know go to to, to log in, so to speak.
4: Uh,
1: state law does say they can do that. It doesn't say that they can do that on absentee ballots. So it's kind of it was a ruling on the technicalities there, and that's just just the word of the law. That's, that's you know, and it's um, uh. I mean, it'd be nice if we could have it the other way. Quite frankly, that's a change that I would like to work toward with state legislators going forward to make absentee ballots even more secure. Um, But, you know, the fact that he threw out all the rest of the Democrats' lawsuit, essentially, uh, basically means we're done now with the judges for this election cycle. So we're going forward like we are now, uh, and we don't have to worry about um, uh, any more shenanigans, if you will, with uh, what they were trying to pull in federal court.
0: Well, that's a good thing, because one of the people that was doing the original lawsuit they posted up on their uh, web page, up on Facebook. They posted up pictures of them eating, sitting next to people without a mask on. You know, having a fun cavorting yeah. around. They put these right. pictures up on their Facebook page. Right. <laughs> as it goes through, oh, we're laughing. We're laughing. It's just all you have to do is just, as a friend of the court, just present the Facebook page. You you oh, tell yeah. me that you can't get a signature because you can't be within a certain amount of feet for someone, so you can't right. have them sign it for you. But yet you can go right. to out and eat and go out with your friends and party.
3: Yeah. Uh, go
0: to Wally World and stand within three feet of a cashier. Yeah. Uh, but no, 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 you can't get that. We just well, said
3: yeah. It
1: was
0: the most you ridiculous know. thing we ever saw. I mean, we were laughing the well, like, whole like, way. Like,
1: like I said, I really it was just an attempt on their part to make uh, absentee voter fraud easier. You know, if they don't have to have somebody witnessing that you are who you say you are, then it's easier for, you know, somebody who is not who they say they are to actually cast that ballot.
3: <laughs> I mean,
1: you know, the same thing, whenever you go vote in person, you present your ID. You prove you are who you say you are so you can vote. You know, we've got a photo voter ID law now uh, here in South Carolina several years back, which was very good fraud prevention. Uh, applaud the legislature for passing that into law. Uh, and, you know, essentially the witness signature is, you know, similar to that. In the sense that you know, if you're going to cast that absentee ballot, somebody else signs to say that yes, you are indeed who you say you are. Uh, it's just one extra measure of fraud prevention, which is why Democrats try to stop it.
0: All right, and how close are we now to the next step of trying to obtain closed primaries?
1: Well, we'll have to wait again until the legislature comes back this year. We had a bill, or uh, well, several bills related to that, and some other election reform measures we we're trying to get passed this past year. Uh, and that we're getting traction. And then, of course, coronavirus hit and the legislature basically went out of business for the year, all but say a week or two to do budget related stuff or Santee Cooper stuff. Uh, but I've got a lot of support uh, about, uh, I think it's 55 or 60 state house members who, uh, you know, were, were and did and will again co sponsor such a bill uh, for the party uh and um, you know i've got support from uh you know the several of the committee leaders to uh agree to help push forward that legislation so and you know set it on more of a priority in the time uh, uh, in terms of the timetable for the legislature and you know part of that goes along with how helpful we are in turning out our vote and the party is able to be and one of the things i focused on as party chairman is to try to bring more resources to our candidates so then, when our candidates get elected, they understand how important the party is to them. So they're willing to help the party on things like this and other election reform, law
3: reform-related
1: measures. Now, I've had a lot of success getting a lot more uh, support out of members of the legislature for things like that, uh, things like, uh, you know, again, when Democrats last year tried to change the voter registration deadline, they wanted to move it up a week. Get it even closer to election day, you know, as opposed to the 30 days that it is now. Uh, things like that that I was able to sort of stop on a dime uh, because we've got more respect With members of the legislature now, and they're more willing to work with us. And I think that's going to put us in good shape to push that forward here in the next session.
0: Oh, that'd be absolutely wonderful because I was trying to explain, you know, closed primaries to my members, and I got one guy there who goes, "Well, I never register by party." Uh, So how can I end up voting in a primary? And I said, well, if we close them, then you can't. He goes, well, that's not fair to me. And my response would have been, but I bit my tongue, would have been either (laughs) shit or get off the pot, mister. You know, somewhere (laughs) along the way, we have to take a a moral and political stand, don't we?
1: Well, you got to, I mean, look, uh, i look at it this way. The most important thing that a political party does is actually nominate Candidates for public office that's what they Exist for to come together as a group Around a core set of principles That we would call a platform and then Pick candidates that we think represent That platform and put them forward for public Office that's the most important thing That we do now why whenever We do that most important thing that we Do should we be forced To throw the door open to every time Dick and Harry In the world to come help us do that most Important thing that we do that's not fair To us that's not fair to the party again that's The reason why you have a party Uh, So, you know, but there are many different ways That you can structure primary and closed primary laws And there's like 12 different ways that it's done around the nation Uh, You know, but um, the point is The way that we do it right now is the worst way And we should begin to move in the other direction
0: Well, Drew, it has been a pleasure having you It always is And I always love seeing you when I have a chance Do we have a convention coming up this year?
1: Uh, next year. Next year, you we'll have county convention, uh, precinct meetings in March, county conventions in April, and state convention in
0: May. Well, I have to keep those dates open, and I'll see you in May. Yes, ma'am. All
1: right, fantastic. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
0: God bless and happy Halloween, Drew. Take care. All right, Thank check you. out. Uh, you can find Drew over at sc.gop. Our state. Um, website for the Republican Party. want to welcome back onto the show, if I can get my computer here to hit all the right keys, uh, welcome back Michael Fisher. Uh, he is a community advocate and president of the Central Park Civic Association. Good
6: afternoon, Michael. How are you? Well, good afternoon. Nice to speak to you again. You're always a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And my nuts old New York State, New York City. Oh, my goodness. What the heck is going on up there?
6: It's, uh, you know what, I wake up in the morning sometimes and I think it's a bad dream, but it's, a, you know, a nightmare, but then I realize it's it's really happening. The city's a nightmare right now. It's terrible. It really is. Hopefully, uh, we'll, get, we'll to... get out of this mess.
0: Oh, geez. Someone's got to get de Blasio out of there. Someone's got to get Cuomo out of there. Oh, my God. Did you catch the news last night uh, that a, a state trooper was transferred to the boondocks in the uh, Canadian border? Has to go 160 miles one way. What's the guy's name? Ferrara? Uh, No, uh, uh, Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, because he was
6: dating Cuomo's daughter. Did you catch that story? No, I didn't catch that one. It sounds like an interesting one, though.
0: (laughs) a state trooper that was on the bodyguard detail for the governor, Governor Cuomo.
6: Right, uh,
0: right. His daughter, because of the, the coronavirus, moved back into the governor's mansion with daddy. So they struck up a romance, a rather intense romance, it seems. And when daddy found out about it, he transferred this trooper, Pfeiffer, over to the Canadian border, 160 miles away. Now, he just bought a house in Albany, so he has to commute 160 miles in each direction to go back and forth to work. But guess what? It's not stopping him from dating Cuomo's daughter. They're still at it.
6: (laughs) Well, you know know what? When you're a parent, the one thing that I've learned, the more you tell somebody to to not do something, the more they do it. Simple, (laughs) you know? Simple arithmetic. I don't think he's figured that out yet. You know, maybe, you know, the other thing was, is that the more he put, you know, all these, unfortunately, these old people that had the virus, these people that had the virus into nursing homes, I wish he knew that, the more people would die. He, had, he didn't figure that one out either. He did a terrible thing there, too.
0: Oh, man. And I, I turned around to my husband. And I said, that trooper's name is Pfeiffer? I wonder if his first name is Barney. <laughs> because Barney probably Fiver had
6: a reputation as a ladies' man. <laughs> You know, it, would, it wouldn't oh, surprise man. me a bit if it was. That's pretty funny. That is hilarious. You can't make that up. You really can't. <laughs>
0: no. no. And the more I hear about Cuomo and de Blasio, the more I just shake my head. Now, I understand that someone went and defaced the Black Lives Matter in front of the Trump Tower again, that they poured black yes. tar all yes. over it?
6: Yes. Yeah. Actually, I have to go over and take a look to see if they repainted it. It's literally a, a street over from where I live. Uh, But I don't know if they've repainted it or not yet. But um, I'm sure that's going to happen many more times. It is what it is.
0: Yeah, now, um, before this virus all broke out, of course, or as it was starting to break out, um, you had a call to President Trump to help with the New York City homeless. And now all of a sudden we've got the virus breakout and everything's switched all around now, as I understand it, you've got fewer families and children now as homeless than you had two years ago?
6: Yes, yes. We actually, we've had a decrease because they don't want to be in the city. They want, they're, they're, they're even scared. They're, there's 500,000 people who left the city, and they've even left the city. So, but we still have a lot of homeless. I mean, the homeless population is continuing to grow, you know, single men, single women. But the families have all left, too. They, they realize that that's a pretty scary place to be right now. I mean, they don't want to be in these buildings and these shelters where they're going to get beat up and robbed and everything else. So they're out of here.
0: Wow. You know, uh, people kept on asking why there's so many homeless, and de Blasio and Cuomo were blaming it on Trump. But it's Democratic policies that raise the taxes, increase the regulations that causes the prices of homes and apartments to increase, thus causing more homelessness, correct?
6: Correct. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely a piece of it. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the majority of people that are living on the streets are mentally ill. I mean, these are people that need help. You know, a lot of people that maybe one time were in mental institutions were now thrown out of the mental institutions. And, you know, when they closed up those institutions, now these people are on the streets. So you have a lot of them on the streets. And, uh, you know, then you have a lot of people. Yeah, there are people that can't afford to pay their mortgages and their rent, and they end up on the streets. Um, and then you just have just like I said, a lot of the the people that are mentally ill. I mean, uh, and the city spends three billion dollars a year. I have no idea what they're spending on. I mean, they, they 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 rent out very expensive buildings. They they uh, they get five star hotels. They put them into these buildings, and uh, they do nothing to actually help them or rehabilitate them. And they just they have no problem writing out these expensive these, these checks for these expensive buildings that everybody's making a ton of money on. The the mayor gets donations. The governors gets donations. Uh, however, uh, uh, the actual people that are actually need help don't get any help, really. I mean, they, the, whole, the, the mentally ill don't want to go into these shelters, again, you know, like the families, because they don't want to get beat up and robbed, so they just sleep on the streets. And every time I walk into my apartment building and I see somebody sleeping on the street, I go, shame on these politicians. I mean, how, you know, how cruel it is it of them for just to leave them and abandon them on the streets? There's so many things they could be doing. I mean, there's so many things they could be doing, and, le- and the cost would be a lot less, but they just – they're not making it a priority. And I think the, moving forward, I think politicians, you know, whether we're talking about mayors or governors or, you know, presidents or, or – or everybody needs to make this a priority. It's a national crisis. I mean, you know, you have 700,000, 600,000 700, homeless people throughout the United States. You have 70,000, 80,000 homeless people here in New York, and the, and the numbers are going to continue to grow double, triple, quadruple, unless we do something about it. And leaving them to sleep on the streets and letting them, you know, sleep in tents, if that's what they want to do, is really the wrong way to go about it.
0: And now, about a month ago, the New York Post had put up an article about de Blasio and putting these people into the hotels. And I was surprised mm-hmm. that the hotels charge $120 a night. No wonder why the hotel owners are not objecting to the fact that they have the homeless there. Um, there are roughly 13.5, 13 and a half thousand New Yorkers living in the hotels right now, including mm-hmm. 10,000 of them. They moved into the state after the COVID outbreak. So they were actually busting people in to live in these hotel rooms at $120 a night. More and than said, that.
6: Over- more than, that's, that's cheap. I mean, they're spending more than $120. They're, they're, they're spending $250 a night, $300 a night for some of these hotels it's it's very 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 expensive i mean in the upper west side they 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 put them into um this very very the Lucerne hotel uh which is a which is a uh four star hotel and uh, it you know it's ridiculous it's very expensive and what they did was they, I mean the community was just completely shocked about it i mean one day they woke up and you know, there were, there were a ton of homeless people living in the Lucerne, and they were doing drugs on the streets, defecating in the streets. Um, the crime was going up and everything else. I mean, it's just not the right way to go about doing things. And what's interesting is is that um, um, the, the community fought it and said, look, you know, we can't live in this kind of environment. It's Look, we want to help the homeless, but we can't live in an environment like this where, there, where there's an uptick in crime and we have kids and everything else. So what the mayor agreed to do is, all right, we'll move them somewhere else. And they decided they were going to move them to a hotel downtown, lower, lower um, east side. And, uh, um, and the, the, the homeless people, together with a couple of different groups, filed a lawsuit. And now the, the, the courts have basically said they can stay in the Lucerne Hotel. I mean, once you put them in a hotel, you, you, it's very difficult to get them out. Um, so, you know, this, this, what the city's been doing is they've been literally putting homeless people in, in hotels throughout the city, They've been putting them into these these buildings that they're renting out from these slum lords in the city. These slum lords are making millions and millions of dollars. And the homeless people aren't being helped. And the people that live in these communities are seeing crime go up. They're seeing, you know, needles in the streets. It's it's really just not the right way to do things. It's not good for the homeless, and it's not good, you know, for the people that live in these communities. I mean, you know, there's 500,000 people that have already left the city since the virus. And, you know, if, this, if the mayor and the governor want more people to leave and uh, move on in their lives somewhere else, then continue to operate the city the way they're operating it. I mean, people are going to continue to leave. It's terrible. Real estate values are going down. Uh, you know, rental rentals are a lot less expensive than they, than they were. And, uh, you know, there, there's a situation even right now because of the virus where people live in that, that are renting aren't paying their rent. And uh, so these landlords are really kind of being on the hook for, you know, not, they're not getting paid anything. So they pretty much have to pay all the expenses. So it's not a good situation at all. What's going on in the city. It's a very ugly situation. And the mayor and the governor are just not doing anything to make it better. It's a shame. It really is. I mean, hotel, I mean, hotels are shut down. Uh, Restaurants are all going out of business. Retail stores are going out of business. I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I always like to support the local retailers, And you walk in, they're empty. There's nobody in these stores that are really buying anything. It's terrible.
0: Uh, Imagine what the tax collection base is going to be after the first of the year. When the tax bills start going out, what is not going to come in? So I'm wondering how the heck they're going to put a budget forward when there's no money coming in. If people are not working, if people are not Mm -hmm. paying the rent, landlord has nothing to – and he's going to be having a tax bill, huge tax bill, based upon what the value was the year before, but he's not going to be
6: able to pay it. So
0: it's going to be a ghost town if it's not already.
6: Well, we haven't seen, you know, how bad the problem is going to be at this point. You know, I mean, you're going to start to see more retailers go out, more restaurants go out. I mean, the restaurants right now, they don't allow 25% occupancy. So you can't really make money. If you're a restaurant owner, you can't make money. Now, yeah, you can serve outside, but a lot of a lot of these restaurants can't really serve outside just because of where they're located. And the ones that can, I mean, at this point, you really can't because it's too cold. I mean, today it's like 40 degrees. So even, even if, even if you put a heater outside, people aren't going to want to eat outside. Um, So um, you're going to have more restaurants going out of business. How, how do you screw up a city? Talk to de Blasio. I mean, I've never seen anything so bad. I mean, come on. I mean, let the restaurants run their businesses, you know, do what you can to help the retailers. Try to get people to come into the city. I mean, having people leave the city and stay out of the city is going to hurt the city in the long, in the long run. It's not a good situation. It's horrible. It's very depressing, to be perfectly honest with you.
0: Yeah, and, and if you look at what's going on out there, even the cops are not able to do their job. So my friend, Patty Lynch, I sent out this, uh, this mailer to tell people who to vote for, not just citywide races. But he reached out to the outer boroughs, including Nassau and Suffolk County. Uh, and New York State has become so bad. My sister, uh, who lived in Albany, just recently, just in the last couple of weeks, sold her house and moved down to Georgia. And she's loving it You know, because it's, it, 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 we take care of our people here. What de Blasio is doing in the city, I don't know. Was he out working at the gym again instead of being in the mayor's office?
6: You know, he's a, he's a socialist. And, um, you know, he, I, I just think he sits back and tries to think of ways to, that are more like a socialist way of doing things. And, you know, not in terms of, you know, running a, a city like a business like it should be. And, uh, you know, when you try to run a place like a, this, you know, like a socialist state, you know, you're going to run, run out of business. And that's what he's doing. I mean, Everything he's doing, he's spending, he's wasting money. He's wasting money on programs that aren't working. You know, he's cutting them. He cut the police force, which is really a bad thing. I mean, more people want to leave because they don't feel like they're being protected. You have less police. You don't have plainclothesmen on the streets. He took them off the streets. Um, I mean, I know that when my wife and I walk around, you know, we're a little bit more nervous. You know, you, you know what? A year ago, two years ago, you walk around the city, I didn't even think twice about it. Now I think twice about it. My wife does too. You worry that what if you get you know if you don't keep an eye out on things you could get mugged. And even you know Midtown or anywhere. I mean the crime is way up. Shootings are way up. I mean there's a lot of shootings going on. And I mean what's really sad. And I, I walked around the city today. I saw that the plaza was boarding up their windows. I saw that other hotels are boarding up their windows and I guess getting ready for the um, you know the results after the election. And uh, I, I just find that to be just so sad when you have to when you have to board up your windows because you think that there's going to be all kinds of you know terrible things going on in the city after the elections. It, it's it's depressing. I mean the Ritz Carlton is board they just boarded it up they, they they boarded it up and then they took the boards off because I sent a letter to them and they just they just reboarded it up. But this time they painted the boards blue so it doesn't look as much boarded up as it did when it you know when it was yellow. You know what I mean? The yellow wood versus mm-hmm. the uh, than painting it so it's not a good situation we shouldn't be boarding we should not be boarding up the our windows in the city i mean who owns the city i mean we're, we're just going to give the city up and let people destroy our city i'm sorry that 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 should not be taking place in this day and age
0: now de Blasio up for election was it next year or is it in two no so
6: no, he's done he's done he's done after uh next november he there'll, there'll be a new new candidates so that'll be running for um, for re-election. Right. So he's uh, yeah, he's done. Right. He's That's out. Right. But he's got but he's got another year. He's got another year to to do some more damage, you know, to really um, take his socialist ideas and really try to spread it around even more in the city. He just for whatever reason he just doesn't like people in the city. I don't know why he he doesn't like people that own expensive apartment build uh, apartments. You know, he doesn't like people who have money. Yet he owns real estate. And I don't understand that. I mean, this is the American way. We're, we're you know, we're, we're, a, we're a country where we're a capitalistic society, where if you want to go out and make a lot of money, you can. If you don't want to make a lot of, lot of money, that's your prerogative. But uh, if somebody's successful and wants to buy a $10 million apartment, that's their prerogative. You know, it's a nice thing. And plus, those people pay taxes anyway. He should be happy. But for whatever reason, he just, he's doing everything he can to want to make people want to leave the city. And it's, not a, it's a terrible situation. I still love the city. I love, I love New York. I still say it's the greatest city in the world, but having said that, um, you know, I say it with a sad face.
0: That is unfortunate. That is very unfortunate. Now, I saw recently um, that there is a recruitment to get the homeless out to vote, uh, that they're, they're helping register to vote, in some cases paying them to vote. What are you hearing on the street?
6: Well I you know they're not doing anything to like they're not putting voting booths and shelters or anything like that, which they should be doing because every everybody, whether you're homeless or you live in you have a home has a constitutional right to be able to vote but what what we've heard is going on is there might be a little bit of fraud like you know here's uh here's a pack of cigarettes you know can you sign your name to this ballot or something like that? It happened in uh California in uh, Los Angeles where they uh, indicted some people for doing that. Um, but they're really not going out of their way to really get people to vote. And you know what the reality is, is a lot of the homeless people that are mentally ill, I think that's the last thing on their mind is voting. But I think that there are people that, sh- that might want to vote and could make a difference. You know what, I'm sure some of these homeless people would love to get rid of some of these politicians that are making it miserable for them. I think a lot of these homeless people would would probably vote Republican to be perfectly honest with you, because they themselves see that, that uh, the Democrats are not doing anything for them and making it worse for them. Love to see them vote. Love to see them have, you know, um, voting booths set up so they can vote. That would be a great thing.
0: Yeah, now uh, with, with, the, with everything that's going on in the city, one of the projects mm-hmm. your organization does is attempting to help the homeless and the mentally ill uh, but in the interim, my my co-host is posting in the chat room that Mayor de Blasio's wife, Charlene McRae, was given $850 million by the city to run a mental health program, and nothing mm-hmm. has come of that. What's no, going on there?
6: We don't know what's happened with the money. We have no idea, to be really honest with you. And nobody's, you know, nobody's coming out and saying anything, you know. It's just like. You know, when uh, when the when the governor put all those – authorized all those people that had the virus to go into nursing homes, you know, and all those thousands of people died, uh, you know, he's not coming out and saying anything either. Nobody's taking responsibility for anything they're doing. It's, it's a terrible situation. It really is. I'll let, you know, I, w- I wish politicians would take ownership. You know the old saying, the buck stops here? You know what? If you make a mistake, own, own up to it. Come out and say you made a mistake, okay? It, 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 if Charlene – did something with the money that shouldn't have been done or the money just – the programs didn't work out correctly, come out and take ownership. I think if people would rather see that and hear that and then they're more forgiving than when you try to cover it up and just – and not come out and, and just come clean with it. Like the governor's got to come clean with what happened with the nursing homes. I mean, that's a terrible situation. Thousands of people died because they didn't – they just put – how do you put people with the virus into nursing homes? I mean, Really? And then he says he didn't do it. Then who did it? No. <laughs> he blamed it on Trump. He actually blamed it on Trump. I mean, you know, I just, you know, when I, when I hear that, it's just it's ridiculous. I mean, he complimented Trump. So, I mean, I heard him compliment Trump so many times about how much Trump was giving the, the city and how much help he was giving for the virus. And then he attacks him. And then he tries to throw him under the bus and blame him for something that he did. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. I just think politicians have to take ownership. If, if you're not doing something right, if the homeless crisis is getting worse, admit it. Don't say it's getting better. Like De Blasio says, in five years there won't be any homeless in the city. Come on, that's just not true. Come clean with it. Tell the truth. People love to hear the truth. You know, it's just like Biden. Okay, the, the son was stupid enough to to, to bring his computer have it repaired at a place. I mean, how dumb he was when he had all that stuff on there, right? So now they're, they're caught, okay, with their hands in the bag. We all know that it's true. Come clean with it. Admit to it. And people will forgive. But, you know, these politicians don't come clean with things. They lie. And it's just, it's really disgusting. And it's getting worse and worse. And you know what? I'm getting fed up with it. I really am. You know, I just want people to be honest with me. That's all right. We, I don't think it's, I don't think that any of us are asking too much for politicians to just be honest and upfront about things.
0: Now, what's worse is you've got an attorney general that is so progressive, he will not step forward and prosecute anyone for that. You're going to have to wait to see if you get a Republican governor in, a Republican mayor in, turn over the attorney general uh, and the, the city justice department. But that ain't going to happen anytime soon, is it?
6: Well, the Attorney General for the State of New York, you mean, is a woman. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that, um, right, we're going to hopefully, you know, I'm hoping that we get a couple of good people that are going to run for mayor. I'd like to meet with some of those people and talk to them about the homeless crisis and how they need to make it a priority um, and some of the other issues. I'm just hoping we get people that come in and want to run this place like a business and not run it like, you know, progressive, uh, socialistic type of place. People don't want to live in that kind of environment. People are not going to want to stay here. You know, I'm, I can tell you that right now. If they start, you know, if the city starts buying, acquiring buildings throughout the city and, and and opening up jails in the middle of the city and opening up shelters in the middle of the city and, you know, allowing the homeless to sleep on the streets and that gets worse and worse, people are not going to want to stay here. It's as simple as that. So, I mean, they have a decision to make. Do they want to, do they want to make New York City into – you know, what it looked like in the 70s and, the, you know, in the 60s, or do they want to keep it looking, you know, like a great place where people want to come and visit and people want to live. And that's a decision they're going to have to make. And if their decision is that they want people to leave the city, then it's going to be a very poor city because they're not going to have any money to spend because people are going to leave. People aren't going to put up with it. And they're not. They're leaving. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. People are leaving the city, right and left. You know, I mean, I, I, no, I love it. the city, but, but people, are, people are getting fed up with it. They're, they're getting fed up with these politicians because the politicians aren't being honest, and the politicians aren't working for them. They're, working, they're not working for the people that live here. They're not working for their constituents. People vote these politicians in to work for them and to do the right things, and they're not doing the right things. They're coming in with these agendas that are so far out left. It's ridiculous.
0: Well, you know, the worst part is, is that when a neighborhood is decimated, which the entire New York City is now decimated. It takes decades. It takes generations to rebuild those neighborhoods back up. I mean, the the riots of the 60s and 70s, New York City did not start to recover until the mid-80s. I mean, my first footpost was the burnt-out building that Serpico was shot in. And within a matter of an hour, I had my first arrest. You know, and that was in the mid-80s. It takes a long time. That's if. That's if you can find someone to, uh, if you do open up a business, find insurance. That's a huge if. Now, with the rioting, the insurance doesn't cover that. That, that business is a total loss. And people don't understand the effect, of, not of just the virus, of the politicians' policies, but of these riots. And you've got a, a three-strike whammy against New York City at this point.
6: Well, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, I think most of us can all agree that, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people, whether Democrats or Republicans, are completely against rioting. I mean, nobody wants rioting and people coming to destroy cities. But we have to step up and and fight the rioting. We have to make sure you have the National Guard in there. We have to stop it. We have to put our, you know, we have to also have, you know, if you're caught rioting, you're going to go to jail. You know, if you destroy buildings, you're going to go to jail. I mean – the problem is, is they don't want to enforce those laws, and so people think they can go out and destroy other people's properties. I mean, there are people, whether it's New Manhattan or uh, Harlem or the bronx or or any of the cities around the country where you know people go in and they destroy these these businesses and these people i mean it's just, it's a very sad, sad situation, and uh, you know we just have to have laws that are that are applied equally to everybody who does those terrible things i mean otherwise they're going to continue to do them i mean I have no idea what's going to happen here the day after the election and I have to tell you I'm pretty scared. You know, I'm hoping that you know there's common sense and you know I'm hoping that the mayor takes the proper precautions to make sure that the city's prote- the people, the people, the citizens of this city are protected, you know, from any of this harm. That's what I'm hoping for. You know, he ha- he has an obligation to protect the people that live here and pr- and protect you businesses know. from this
0: It's true. It's true. And I wouldn't blame you if you were to come down and visit me the day after election because I'm telling you, it'd probably be pretty quiet down here. Uh, But you also have instigators like George Soros publicly, publicly telling people the day after the election, burn the place down, openly saying that. that, Now He's also throwing a lot of money into a lot of races. Now, how does the race look with AOC? Because I know that there have been some strong oh. people that are going up against her. Oh, but does she's
6: look done like deal. she's going to a <laughs> yeah. She's a done she's deal? She's a done deal. She's a done deal, yeah. For whatever reason, I can't figure that yeah. one out. I mean, I listen to her talk sometimes. I mean, look, she's a young lady. She has a lot to learn. And I'm um, sure she's got a good heart and everything else. But she just has a lot to learn, you know. She has a lot to learn. And you know what? I, I always One thing that I learned growing up, like my father used to tell me also, listen, you know, twice as much as you talk, like, listen, don't talk, you know, listen more than you talk and you'll learn a lot more. And I think she tends to talk more than she listens. And that's something she's, I think she'll learn that eventually, but some of the things that she says are just way, way out there. And, uh, it's just not, it's just not reality. You know, look, if you want to get educated, go, go, go spend uh, six months in a socialist country, go, go over to a handful of socialist countries, and see what it's like to live in those places. Then come back here and tell us that's the kinda of, that's the way you want to live. Because that's what they're pushing for, yet they're not educated. They don't really understand what's none of these people understand even what socialism's all about. They're just yakking away and saying things that are way out there. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we are a capitalist society and that's the way we are and you know, it shouldn't and just because a handful of people want to make a change doesn't mean we have to change with them. I mean if these people want to make the change and you know what, before you want to make the change, go and see what it's like to live under those conditions in other countries. And believe me, when and you they know, see what it's like, you're going to love it here.
4: You are so right, Michael, because um, being a world traveler, I've had the opportunity to uh, visit a lot of different countries, and um, some of them were very poor, uh, especially in Africa and some places in the Middle East. And mm-hmm. our people here just don't understand how well off they are. You know, we take for granted the liber- liberties that we have and, mm. and the, the opportunities. And um, I don't know who could ever romanticize about socialism because we have a lot of people here in the United States who escaped from such, such uh, regimes. And um, I know Trump had some speaking out um, during some of his rallies, uh, especially Cubans, but I think we need to hear more from you know people like that who escaped from uh, Absolutely. countries that were socialists, yeah. You know, to
3: awaken. I mean, people.
4: Um, we want people, people want to here. come over
6: here. They're, everybody wants to come to the United States. And we're the greatest country in the world. We're great. We're great people. We are. We are one people. You know, and everybody seems to think we're all different people. We're all one people. We're the greatest country in the world. We're one people. Yeah, we have problems here and there. We have racism, and those are things that we have to work on and get rid of, and we have to hold people accountable when we hear people saying things that they shouldn't be saying or doing things that they shouldn't be. Without a question, we should address those issues. But we're such a great place. And, uh, and you know what? I, I, I love New York City because it's a multicultural city. I, I have so many, you know, people, friends in the city. I mean, we just have great conversations, great times together. And uh, I, I've just never seen so much negativism, you know, in the last, I mean, the last 12 months of them seeing now. I mean, this is terrible what's going on. Everybody's so negative about the country, about uh, everything. And, you know, the police, I mean, sure, there are some bad police, but the police aren't that bad. I mean, there's just, everybody's so negative. And it, it's really very sad and, and it's very depressing. It really is. I think we'll get out of this because we are resilient people. We are a country that no matter how tough things get, we always find a way to get out of it. And even New Yorkers, New Yorkers are tough people. And, and New Yorkers will find a way to get out of this. And New York City will come back to being, you know, New York City the way I know New York City is. It's just a matter of time. But I think people have to fight for that. People have to, people, we have to remind each other of how great of a country we are. We have to talk about it with other people how great of a country we are. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad place. Like, you know, when you look at the people that are complaining about our country, you know, these are people in the maybe hundreds or thousands. You know, I mean, when you look at the total population of this country, that's a very, very small percentage. But if you look at the overall population, people are very happy. People love this country. And people don't want to see a change here. These are very small numbers of people that are complaining about the police and how bad things are and how bad everybody is and how mean everybody is the small percentage of people in this country they just speak very loud their voices are heard but you know for the majority of us we love this country and i don't think we want to it's see Michael. a change
0: no you're you're doing really great hard work up there in new york city fighting for a city you love I want to thank you for joining us people can find you on your website Excuse me. Which is the Central Park South Civic Association? There's a link on the show page people can click on to go and learn more about the hard work you do, and we love you. And I'm wishing you the best of luck, a happy Halloween, and come Tuesday, um, I'll keep the door open for you on Wednesday if you want to escape your
6: chair too. Nah, you know what? I'm, I don't run from anything. I never run from anything. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm fine. I love my city. I'm okay. We're we're gonna get there. We will get. We will be fine. We're a great country. We're great people. We'll
0: be fine. Be safe and God bless, Michael. Thank you for joining us. God bless.
6: Us. My pleasure. Take care. All
0: right. Check out Michael on his website. And we have someone that we love, always having on the show, always a lot of fun to talk to. A very knowledgeable man from the Heritage Foundation, Hans von Spakovsky. How are you doing?
7: I'm doing great, and thanks for having me back.
0: Oh, it is always our pleasure. I had uh, my state uh, GOP chair, Drew McKissick, on just a little while ago, and we were talking about the lawsuit here in South Carolina that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And uh, there was a tag-on lawsuit by a couple of other organizations, and uh, they just got thrown out of court. So it looks like our ballots are pretty safe so far here in South Carolina. And how are they looking at the rest of the nation? Yeah, unfortunately
7: that's not true in the rest of the nation i mean we still have lawsuits going on everywhere and we've been getting decisions almost every day and some of them some of the decisions have been positive i mean to to give you a quick example um in alabama uh a court there told the state that it couldn't um it couldn't enforce its voter id law that it couldn't enforce its witness signature requirement on absentee ballots uh But that was uh, thrown out by the Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. On the other hand, uh, you know, you have your neighboring state of North Carolina, where uh, so far uh, all these changes being made, uh, unfortunately, are being allowed, I think, to remain in place. Um, And we have in Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court refused to overturn this just shocking decision by the state Supreme court and and folks need to understand the state Supreme court in Pennsylvania is probably one of the most partisan biased state courts in the country because, uh, they run for office there. And a couple of years ago, um, all these democratic judges ran for office, basically making promises as if they were running for the legislature. And they issued an order, if you can believe this, that, um, not only extended the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots, even though they don't have the authority to do that, they also told election officials, oh, by the way, um, you know the, the part of the law that says uh, the the envelope has to have a postmark that shows it's, it was mailed by the end of election day? You need to just uh, ignore that provision, and if there's no postmark on the envelope, you have to count it anyway. And then they said, oh, and by the way, You can't reject any absentee ballot uh, because the signature of the absentee ballot doesn't match the signature of the voter. So it's like they're setting up and inviting election
0: fraud in Pennsylvania. You know, with with North Carolina, uh, next to that, I'm looking at your article, uh, eight states in voting lawsuits with election day less than a week away. And, um, North Carolina, I have a big WTF, and I underlined something called collusive litigation. And when you talk about North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, that's what we're looking at. Can you explain exactly what collusive litigation is?
7: Sure. Uh, Collusive litigation is when um, an attorney general, usually, uh, basically invites his political allies and friends to sue the state. And then instead of defending state law, immediately raises a surrender flag and says, oh, I'll agree to settle the suit and I'll give you whatever you want. And an an example, another example of this is what happened recently in Minnesota. In Minnesota, the secretary of state there, uh, he's a Democrat, former uh, Democratic state legislator. He's a Soros secretary of state. And a liberal group sued saying, hey, it's. It's unconstitutional for Minnesota to require absentee ballots to be received by the end of election day. Uh, we we think you need a deadline. Uh, I mean to extend the deadline. And so, what does the Secretary of State do? Instead of defending the state law, he says, "Oh sure, I'll agree to it. I'll agree to settle the case, and we'll extend the deadline for receipt of absentee ballots for a week." And um, fortunately the Eighth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals just last night issued an opinion overruling a a lower court judge who said that was okay and saying, look, the Secretary of State can't just willy-nilly agree to uh, change state law, and they threw that out. So fortunately, they restored the original deadline. But that's typical of the kind of cases, and that shows how collusive litigation works when the Attorney General, the Secretary of State, don't actually defend state law, but but just instantly agree to whatever it is the plaintiffs in the case want.
0: And we we let it go. Is is there anything we can do to correct it?
7: Well, you know, what happened in the um, Minnesota case is two
0: presidential
7: electors, so two uh, Republican electors, actually, they filed a motion to intervene in the lawsuit, objecting to what the Secretary of State had done. And they were successful in doing
0: that. That's what got it up
7: before the uh, Eighth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals.
0: So, in other words, two Electoral College individuals turned around and said, wait a minute, we've got a problem with this one, so hey. (laughs) But in the case of North Carolina, no one's challenging that. Are they? Well,
7: no, they have challenged it. They just so far haven't been successful in, in getting it uh, overturned. Um, and in the uh, you know, in the Pennsylvania case, it was the state legislature that actually filed an emergency appeal with the u s. Supreme Court, un- unfortunately not, not successfully. And, and the Pennsylvania decision, the Supreme Court's decision not to overrule what the state Supreme Court had done. Uh, shows one of the problems we have in this on this on the US Supreme Court because uh it was justice chief justice John Roberts who switched his vote and voted with the liberal justices on the court not to um uh, take up the case and overturn what Pennsylvania had done and this this was last week before Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed when they still uh, only had eight justices on the court
0: and and he doesn't give a valid reason as to why he's changed his vote. He would vote one way on a case where you had the same exact situation. He votes the opposite way. No explanation for the flip-flop.
7: Well, he did, he did try to give an explanation um, that I don't think made a lot of sense, which was that he said that, well, in the Pennsylvania case, it wasn't a federal judge. Telling the state it had to do all these things. It was the state supreme court, and I'm not going to question that. The problem, the fallacy in that argument that the chief justice seems to have missed is that if you look at the U.S. Constitution, if you look at the uh, what's called the Elections Clause, that's in Article Two. It gives the power to set the rules for federal elections in a state, not just to the state in general. It gives it specifically to the state. Legislature, so the state supreme court, of Pennsylvania, and the the state courts in other states, they don't have the authority to simply override what the state legislatures have done and suddenly change, for example, the deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. I mean, the legislature could do that; they got full power. if They if they want to extend the deadline for a week, the legislature can do that, but judges can't.
0: Now, miraculously. <laughs> I have little notes all over the place. Miraculously, it looks like Michigan got it right. What happened up in Michigan?
7: Well, Michigan, it was the same. Uh, it was the same kind of thing. Uh, the, the left filing lawsuits, trying to get extensions of uh, absentee uh, for the receipt of absentee deadlines, etc. And fortunately, the court of appeals, uh, the state court of appeals, actually stepped in and said. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, we're not going to allow this to, we're not going to allow this to happen. So there's a case where actually you had good, uh, you had good results from, from the courts. Look, the, the, the biggest rule that many, particularly many of the federal court judges are, um, ignoring is the fact that, uh, the, the Supreme court has said, um, in a case back in 2006 called the Purcell case, and election lawyers all know about this case. In in 2006, the Supreme Court said, look, federal judges in particular should refrain from changing the rules and laws governing elections uh, close to election day. Because if you do that, you're going to cause all kinds of chaos and confusion. And the closer you get to election day, uh, the worse that problem is, particularly when you have federal judges uh, changing rules in the middle of the election. And as you know, people started voting weeks ago.
0: You no know, matter of fact, Gorsuch cited that in one of the rulings they had. Uh, I made a right. rotation about that, that he cited Purcell. And it says, you, you can't change it. The only one that can change it is the legislature. Um, right. But there's also a, re- that they have a whole big thing going on about whether it's postmarked, it's not postmarked, you know, And Virginia just recently had a split decision on theirs. That just came out just two days ago, it looks like.
7: Yeah, and that was another case of collusive litigation. Because what happened in in Virginia is that, um, uh, look, the Democrats took over the state legislature, and the the rule used to be that your uh, absentee ballot had to be in by the end of Election Day. Uh, In January, the state legislature uh, changed the law and said, no, uh, you're absolutely bad. It'll still be good if you get it in within three days after the election, as long as it's postmarked by Election Day. So what is the state board of elections? We don't have a secretary of state in Virginia. We have a state board of elections, uh, and they're also controlled by the Democratic Party. And they issued a rule. In direct, uh, directly contrary to the state law, telling uh, county registrars all over the state, oh, by the way, if the you have to count absentee ballots even if there's no postmark on them, uh, directly contrary to the law. Now, the job of the attorney general of the state would have been to um, defend the state law and go after the state board of elections for, for what it did. No, instead the attorney general, who's also a Democrat, said, oh, that's perfectly okay. Uh, fortunately, a lawsuit was filed by um, a member of a county election board who said this 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 rule by the State Board of Elections uh, violates federal law, and the judge agreed and uh, ch- I think actually chastised the attorney general for not defending the law and instead uh, trying to say that violating state law was okay
0: well we all remember the image of watching in philadelphia the black panthers outside the polling place with weapons in hand and voters from going in so now in michigan they had put a ban on guns at polling places saying that you know with your concealed carry you cannot carry in there that got overturned by that same uh, michigan court right
7: uh, that's right, and uh, you know I've been hearing all these claims made by uh, some folks that they're expecting all this intimidation at the polls, and and uh, look, there's just no evidence that that in fact is uh, going to happen, and certainly not not because there are poll watchers or just ordinary voters going into polls to exercise their right to vote, and. You know, maybe they have a concealed carry permit. Uh, the, the fact that somebody has a concealed carry permit uh, and goes to vote is in no way uh, intimidation of voters or – or, or uh, nobody can say that that's going to somehow cause a, a
0: problem. Well, the person that had the lawsuit said, you know, he felt as if he would not be safe to in there, so the court then, you know, agreed with him that he does have a Second Amendment right. Unfortunately, in some places, like here in South Carolina, school zones are gun-free zones, and most majority of polling places are inside schools. So you can't have a firearm within so many feet of the school. So it then prevents us from exercising our Second Amendment right while we vote. But no one challenges that, and that's that's, that's a shame.
7: Yeah, no, I understand the concern about that.
0: Yeah. But we'll see, one day, one day. But, you know, we still have a real problem of voter fraud uh, and ways in which to tamper with it. And vote harvesting is a big one, especially in the senior homes. And some say, our state, South Carolina, you can harvest up to 12 votes. Uh, California, we saw rampant, you know, fraud being occurred in 2016 where they were actually paying homeless people to fill out absentee ballots and then harvest those votes. Uh, this is a huge problem, and we've got a growing problem of homelessness on the streets, and they're right for voter fraud.
7: Yeah, that's unfortunately true, and uh, California is, is a particularly bad uh, example of what that can do. They, they have no limits on how many ballots can be harvested, and of course, when you allow vote harvesting by strangers and third parties, um, you're putting those Uh, strangers and third parties in the position of intimidating coercing and bribing voters and and again uh, you know we you you probably just saw there was just more undercover video released by Project Veritas of a woman in Texas who was bragging about the fact that she uh, regularly goes and harvests ballots and in fact will sometimes fill out the ballots themselves for the voters or pressures voters or it looked like she was potentially bribing voters with uh, gifts to them to to vote a particular
0: way. Well, we're going to have to see. I mean, you're going to have tons of stories to put up. Now, on the Heritage Foundation, you do have a link to a uh, where you are tracking examples of proven voter fraud. Where's that link at?
7: It's at uh, heritage. dot org slash voter fraud.
0: Very easy to remember. Very easy to remember. It, now it, it, it is. Now, one of the things that uh, you wrote about on the Heritage uh, Foundation site is about Nancy Pelosi putting forward some legislation uh, for procedures to remove the president. Uh, tell us about this because i mean i was reading it and my head was spinning
7: yeah i think this was a political stunt um and not a very wise one but but in essence um you may recall after uh, john f kennedy was uh, died uh the country passed the 25th amendment it was ratified i think in 1967 the 25th amendment laid out what would happen if a president um, became unable to uh, discharge the duties of his office for, you know, because of he resigns, or because of death, or uh, because of a disability. And um, it set up a procedure so that if uh, the vice president and a majority of cabinet secretaries agree that the president is so disabled that he can't carry out his duties, then he can be temporarily removed and the vice president becomes the acting president until the president recovers. Um, Nancy Pelosi has introduced a bill to replace the cabinet secretaries, who, of course, look, they work with the president every day. They're going to have the best uh, personal knowledge of the president's capabilities. But to replace the cabinet secretaries with a commission a 17-member politically appointed commission uh, who would uh, tell Congress whether or not they think the president is physically or mentally disabled. And she even puts in the bill that they supposedly have the power to force the president to undergo a medical examination when Congress has no constitutional authority to require a president to undergo a medical examination. Look, there's no... There's no chance. I mean, this might pass the House, but there's no chance it would pass the Senate. And certainly this president would never sign that bill. So it's not going to become law. It's a bad idea, but uh, it shows how much she doesn't like the current president. And, you know, there were some folks been speculating that they want to get this passed because they're worried about if Joe Biden wins, they're worried about Joe Biden's mental capabilities. (laughs)
0: Well, I I thought I caught in the news yesterday that she's also putting forward a bill that um, when Trump gets reelected or not get reelected, she would have something in place to forcibly remove him and have him arrested should he not vacate the White House if Biden is president. Uh, Have you heard anything like that?
7: No, I have to admit, I did not see that. But th- that's just more—that's uh, uh, po- just another political stunt. Uh, look, we have never in our entire history ever had a president refuse to leave office, and there's just uh, only the wildest, crazy people would would claim that uh, Trump would be unwilling to leave office if he loses the election. I mean, that, that's just absurd—that that whole idea.
0: Uh, they're coming up with a lot of good ones. And matter of fact, um, we have... What was this guy's name? Um, oh, yeah, Chris Coombs. Uh I I was watching the TV, and I just stopped. And I had to lean back in my Archie Bunker. I lost my Archie Bunker chair to my 88-year-old mother. So I have a love seat, an Archie <laughs> Bunker love seat. Um, he was on Rachel Mad Cow, I mean Maddow, Ow. Uh, and he said that he's not going to allow any of the Supreme Court justices he disagrees with, to sit peacefully. Now, if if I remember correctly, if you threaten an elected official or a sitting judge, uh, isn't that a federal crime?
7: Well, yes, it potentially is. Um, uh, I think he'd have to, you know, given he's a member of Congress, uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody's going to go after him for it, but um, he should be publicly criticized for making those kind of remarks. I mean, though he, he's in essence, it sounds like, uh, sanctioning violence uh, against uh, a Supreme Court justice. And uh, anyone in public office that does something like that ought to be ashamed of themselves for encouraging violence uh, or anything like that.
0: Well, it even goes so far as George Soros publicly uh, calling for nationwide chaos, uh, that they were going to claim that the election was stolen and then there should be nationwide street riots. Why isn't this man in handcuffs?
7: Well, you know, uh, we do have a First Amendment.
3: <laughs>
7: and, uh, you know, inciting someone to violence uh, takes some very specific intent. And a general statement like that, even though it is obviously shameful and the wrong thing to say and shows uh, just what a terrible person he is. I mean, look, it's, uh, that's not criminally prosecutable.
0: But what happens if a nationwide riot does break out because of him, because of his encouragement, or if he even backs it because he's been putting a lot of money behind a lot of groups that possibly trace back to Antifa, Black Lives Matter. Uh, We know traces back to the Occupy Wall Street um I I honestly well, think that there should
7: be a full question. That's a different matter. If um uh there's a there's a federal law called the Anti-Riot Act and uh it makes it a criminal violation of the law if you uh participate in, organize or fund uh, riots and other kinds of uh, behavior like that. So, if you could actually draw a direct line between uh, his funding and the organization of violent riots, well, then you might have a case. But that would take an FBI who's willing to investigate it and a Department of Justice willing to prosecute it.
4: Hans,
0: well, I got Hans, a question you- for you. Yes. Okay, Chris, we got to our last five. Minutes. Um,
4: I think think about um. Month or two ago, Bloomberg was um, stating that he was going to send a lot of money to Florida to um, to aid um, convicts who got out, you know, felons, to um, right. so they could be able to vote. Right. What ever happened to that? I haven't heard anything about that. And is that a crime?
7: Well, uh, I what I heard the most recent thing I heard was that that hasn't happened, and one of the reasons it may not have happened is that. A lot of folks came out and pointed out that under federal law, it is a crime to pay someone to not only to vote, but it is a crime to pay someone to register to vote. So uh, if he were to give money directly, either through an organization or otherwise, that uh, with the understanding that it would only be given to uh, felons with the understanding uh, that they will register to vote, uh, and that's the only way they'll get the money, then he would be uh, engaging in a criminal violation of federal law. And I, I suspect that his lawyers may have told him, uh, you really shouldn't do this.
0: Well, let's, let's hope that's true. But Hans, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. You know we always love you, want you to come back as often as you want. Um, people can find you at heritage.org, correct?
7: That is That is right, and I'd be happy to come back.
0: All right, always, always, always. I, That is just about um, all we have here for today. Um, but I want to leave the show off with uh, a little prayer that someone sent me if I can pull this up uh, um, Oh, tell me the second page didn't print out. Ah, oh, shoot., oh, our friend Dave Bray sent a a beautiful prayer to lead off the uh, election with praying for a safe America, praying for good decisions, and the second page did not print off. Ah, oh, shoot. Anyway. Well, it's Halloween this weekend. I want to wish everyone a safe Halloween weekend. And when you go out to vote, whether you do it by mail-in, by absentee balloting, or in person this Tuesday, please be safe. Please vote Trump. And uh, i got to tell you, Curtis, two things. We've got two endorsements that just came out the last couple of days. Uh, Jack Nicholas has endorsed Trump and Brett Favre. Now, Green Bay Packers were my favorite team until they started kneeling, so mm, maybe Brett Favre may be getting me interested once more in Green Bay Packers. So two sport figures have come out for Trump. Um, we're going to be back here on uh, next Friday. Daphne Barak has a new movie out that we were discussing earlier, Trump versus Hollywood. Uh, we're lining it up for her to come back on with two individuals that appear in the film, one pro-Trump, one not pro-Trump. So it should be a very interesting show. Curtis, you're taking a little bit of a hiatus, correct, to take care of some personal matters? Did I lose Curtis? Oh, somehow or other, Curtis got muted. What the heck happened there? Oh, sorry about that, Curtis. I'm bringing you back on. There you go. You're (laughs) with us, Curtis.
4: Right. Yeah, I have an enlarged prostate, so I'm going to take some time out to get that PSA, those levels down. So I'll be listening in whenever I can, but I will be back in January.
0: And possibly calling. <laughs> so, Chris, you take care of oh, yourself yeah. and give you a, a hug. Okay?
4: I will.
0: All I right. Will. We're going to close um, off.
4: Everyone have a great um, weekend.
0: <laughs> okay, Curtis. Thanks. Um, well, I guess we're not going to close the show off. I was going to play "Save America." Well, oh, I'll play the beginning of it. Here we go, and then we'll close off with that. So, until then, I say good night and God bless. Oh, if that damn thing plays!
3: America, the home of the free, but there are people making plans to change America, they respect for her, what matters most to you, that's why I stand for the plan, and I